This episode of How To Wrestling was brought to you by our lovely backers over at patreon.com forward slash how to wrestling. And hey, if you want to support the show, support me and Joe and help How To Wrestling get made, as well as get access to a whole load, over 60 episodes that is, of bonus content, then head over to patreon.com slash how to wrestling, sign up now to become just a $5 backer and get access to all of those audio goodies. If you want to hear myself and Joe reviewing WWE pay-per-views going all the way back to SummerSlam 2015, as well as NXT takeovers and most recently we started reviewing the AEW shows as well as well as our How To Revisited series where we go back and check out how some of our back catalogue has horribly aged since the episodes were first recorded learn how the story of Kurt Angle, Daniel Bryan and others has changed since those episodes first came out all of it is available for a nominal fee of $5 at patreon.com slash wrestling. also available you can request an impression you can request a promo to be delivered by Joanna or myself and there are also advertising spots available on patreon as well but until now sit back at the double cross ranch pour yourself a course and grab one of them old-fashioned wendy's hamburgers it's time for how to terry funk Welcome to the episode of How To Wrestling, the world's first podcast detailing how to wrestling, how to get into wrestling, how to understand wrestling, and goodness knows maybe even how to enjoy wrestling. And we're most certainly not live once again. Hello everyone, it's me, your old pal Cowboy Kevin, saddling up and learning all about wrestling with my better half, my co-host, and my best pal in the whole world. Joe Graham. Hi there. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. well. Is it strange to be doing a podcast not in front of a lovely crowd of people at a festival? Yeah, it's a bit weird. Yeah? Did you have a good time in London? Oh, I had such a good time. It was so great meeting everyone and just, oh, this is the best. We have the best fans. We had the best fans and notably the best time as well, which, yeah. was, uh, which was very good. If you've not checked out the how to music episode and i think some people might sometimes with with podcasts be like mm, live podcasts i don't know man all i'll say is it's one of our best episodes ever i think like, i think so yeah and there's singing in it uh, singing from us yeah right you know spoof musical segments which which if i correct me if i'm wrong that's literally a childhood dream come true it for is you. literally a childhood <laughs> dream come true i remember spending my days in the playground writing versions of the Joseph musical only replacing most of the words with poo and performing it to my my childhood friends and my mum at the time was like you won't find this funny when you're older you know and sure enough I've grown up and I definitely still find it funny yeah your mum was just saying like oh, look she doesn't even know about the Montreal screw job how's this going to be funny just yet so we announced this at the live show this is an episode that I have been clambering for mainly because it's someone who I've always been astonished by I've admired but also someone whose career I felt I barely scratched the surface of in my own fandom, and someone I was so excited to show you. I could tell how excited you were because last night in bed, you were like tossing and turning, <laughs> and you are such a solid sleeper normally, and you would, I was like, oh no, is Kevin really anxious about something? Is he okay? And I was like, no, he's really excited for Terry Funk tomorrow. <laughs> I was basically like a dog the last yeah. couple of weeks, running around the house and like, we, we had a little bit of time set aside to do this and I think I actually have ended up dragging this out a little bit longer to record the episode because I kept finding more and more and more stuff that I wanted 
to show you and to see. So there's been a healthy, rich diet of this man, Terry Funk, in, in the how-to headquarters for the last couple of weeks. And you've been reading his autobiography, haven't you? Yes, I've read his 2005, mostly well-written, but <laughs> we've, I've, I've read his book from 2005, more than hardcore. <laughs> uh, I've certainly read it, and we've got some, yeah, I've got a lot of quotes and things like that from it that hopefully will, will help us along on our journey. But as you've been immersed with him quite recently... What did you know about Terry Funk before we got into this? Because it's a name that's maybe has popped up once or twice. Yeah, he's he's wrestling's uncle, isn't he? I like I feel the most of the stuff I've heard about him has come from Mick Foley when we read his autobiography. Mm. But I don't remember a huge amount about Terry except he was this like mad old man who was like incredibly tough and would do all these hardcore matches with like Mick and somehow he he's still wrestling even when he was like in his like mid 70s yeah he's a guy who like when Mick Foley started he would have been you know by the time Mick Foley had started wrestling he was already like the world's champion he had a career nearly 20 years in length you know he he'd been wrestling for a long time and to think that he was still wrestling after Mick Foley who had a quite a lengthy career and came out of retirement several times Terry still managed to have a career that went longer than that. So he's a he's a very tenured man, I think we could say. He's a bit of an enigma to me because I, I have such strong memories of when we read McFurley's autobiography of seeing that inside cover, or is it the back of the, the cover, I forget, where he has sort of an x-ray scan of his mm, body and you yeah. see all the various broken bones and injuries he suffered over the years, which culmination of led to his early retirement. Mm-hmm. Terry Funk has been involved in way scarier matches from the bits I've seen than Mick. And yet he's still going strong now in his 70s. I, it makes no sense to me. I'd love to see an x-ray of his body yeah. and see how... Like, is it just genetically he's just designed to be very, very tough? Or what is it? I'm not sure if you could point it down to one thing, but I think that's maybe a really important one to hit off start. And toughness. And I mean, we're not a podcast where we usually like to talk about how tough everyone is. <laughs> Necessarily. In a parallel it's... universe, there's a how-to wrestling where instead of talking about hunks, we talk about how tough everyone yeah, is. Yeah, and how Joey points out how certain wrestlers are problematic because they're not tough enough. Oh, I could beat them in a fight. They're cancelled. <laughs> he can't even eat broken glass, this guy. What a piece of shit, that. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's worth bearing in mind then if that's one of the first things you've brought up is the man's supposed toughness. That is uh, quite an important thing. and Because he has... I mean, what type of wrestling would you associate with him from the bits that you, you we'd seen of him? So he hasn't, he doesn't do like flips or anything like that. He he wrestles similarly to Mick Foley and it's kind of this like lumbering around, throwing yourself at things wrestling star where he definitely gets off his feet. He's not like a Jerry Lawler or Rick. Is, is it fair to say Ric Flair doesn't get off his feet? I don't know if I've seen enough matches of his to say that. I mean, R- Rick would, would, would typically be two, two legs on the ground. Yeah. He might bump down and get back up again, but he's not... I mean, he's not as a high flyer as Terry Funk. Terry Funk added a moonsault to his arsenal in his 50s. So <laughs> I don't think that Ric Flair would necessarily be cut from that same cloth in yeah. terms of flips. So maybe it's not fair to even say that he's not flippy. I'm just, maybe I've not seen that many of his flippy matches. I think calling them flip de doos when Terry Funk attempts a moonsault, it's more of a flop de doo uh, Flip-de-don't. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do what Danny Flipty Do doesn't don't. Uh, but yeah, he 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 has added moves like that. He's tried to do spring. He's tried to do springboards, you know, off the ropes like Sabu wow. and all that. There's actually a great 
gif from way back in the day where it's like Terry Funk at a show and he's like in the middle of the of the ropes he's probably 65 or thereabouts legs are shaking and he manages to get his hands up and balance and he stood on the two middle ropes in the middle of the ring and was like oh my god he's like I'm gonna fucking moonsault and then he just kind of falls backwards he doesn't even make but you know what he fucking tried, he tried you know and that was it in his 60s in his 60s like I just don't understand how so many wrestlers have to retire and they're like you know if they're 40s even you know very young compared to Terry and he I just don't understand how 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 his body hasn't just given up on him so is it fair to say that the image you have mostly in your head of Terry Funk is is an older an yeah. older Terry Funk oh yeah no definitely it's it's Terry with the long hair and the little goatee and the sad twinkle in his eye. And the towel. And the towel <laughs> that you love. Now, I would be remiss not to ask you if you could give us an approximation thereof of the very distinct voice of Terry Fong. Now, obviously, his, his, his dander can get up and he, he can raise his voice, but generally speaking, how would you say it comes across? He's very soft-spoken, which yeah. I think is like especially important for someone like Terry because he's, like, he's so hardcore and so tough and then he has this like really quite scary gentle voice and he sounds a bit like this the matches were too violent you know and you're gonna see me sitting down that road mick and i'm gonna be at the stand i'm not talking about the lemonade stand i'm talking about the last stand <laughs> you know, he he is like mcfoley that he has a softness to his voice but he can raise his voice. But I would say McFoley probably spent a lot more of his promos shouting and screaming than yeah. Terry ever does. I mean, he will raise his voice on occasions, and it's quite a scary thing. There's similarities between him and McFoley as well in that when we were watching the matches for Terry, he would often, when he was beating someone up, he'd put on this really high pitched like, pig squeal. Yeah. <laughs> And that is so Mick Foley. He's done, he does the exact same thing. Have you, I mean, you've mentioned Mick Foley there, but I mean, I, I could easily say, even before we get into matches and stuff like that, and, you know, more I've noticed it more so from doing this this research with you, that he's probably one of the most influential wrestlers we've ever done an episode on. Because I seem like not just, you know, you mentioned like individual bits like that, like the, the high-pitched voice or whatnot that other wrestlers have used. Yeah. But I would also say that the style of wrestling that he's done and how he's helped change wrestling, I couldn't point to an individual wrestler who's maybe changed the actual mechanics of how we present wrestling quite like Uncle Terry. Mm. Now, I wonder, wonder what I wanted to ask you before we get into a little bit of history here. You just kind of casually used the word hardcore to describe him. Did and I use it wrong? No, I'm always I mean, really scared I'm going to use it wrong no, someday. No, <laughs> no. It's just that hardcore is like, I think up until like 2008, hardcore was a term that was used very liberally by wrestling fans. And right. I think most wrestling fans would almost shy away from saying, he's hardcore. Like, you don't know what hardcore is about. Because I think it does come off a little bit lame in 2019. Right. But the word is you know it as, as an adjective yeah. in wrestling. What, what would you describe it as? Being involved in very violent matches. And it has to be very violent because I think wrestling is inherently violent. Yeah. So you can't just say, oh, it has to be a violent match. That's not enough. It has to be very violent. There has to be like either weapons or an excess of blood or well, I think that's those are the two really, isn't it? Yeah, what like weapons and blood loss. Typically like the rules of the match would be like no disqualifications. So basically someone who maybe thrives in an environment where 
they might be at a higher than average amount of risk in the already risky yeah, world of wrestling. That's, that's very fair to say. <laughs> like, there's not many wrestlers we've done episodes on, which I would say come under the banner of hardcore. And I think it would be Jimmy Havoc, yep. Mick Foley, and Terry Funk. Yeah, I think so. I'm trying to scan my mind through previous episodes, if there's anyone else. But I think those are the main ones, definitely. Yeah. The Young Bucks, I guess, have been involved in yeah. hardcore stuff, but I wouldn't call them hardcore wrestlers. Maybe the Dudley Boys? I mean, they oh, yeah, often yeah, set yeah. themselves on fire amongst other yeah. things. So. so Terry Funk, he has a bit of a reputation outside of the world of wrestling as being a bit of a wild man. And I was wondering if there was any stories or any little tidbits, because I know I've been giggling like a schoolgirl when I've been reading this book and just like poking you the shoulder and being like, look, he did something crazy and wild. Any stories or any moments from, from Terry's uh, extracurricular activities that stand out to you? I know there was the time he bit someone's bum. <laughs> but I don't know. I can't really remember the circumstance. You have told me this. He did it in anger or something, didn't he? He wanted to piss the guy off, so he bit him in the bum. It was a bar fight. It was a bar fight. It wasn't even a wrestling no, match. It, it, he was wasn't a... drawing money. Match. No, I think you're mixing it up now, because I told you another story. Oh, was this about Rikishi? No, this was... I told you... <laughs> I told you another story that Mick Foley wanted to do an angle where they had the Vince McMahon kiss my ass club yeah. and have Terry join, but then Terry would bite, bite Vince's arse. That's it. That's why I'm getting it confused. Yeah. Right. Now, this is an unrelated incident. But inspired by the original biting of the I bum. think so, yeah. And the original... I mean, we, we should probably set the, the backdrop for most of Terry's early career, which would have been, you know, the NWA, so territories small regional promotions working together to try and kind of have a, a national kind of organization, but they're a level of independence. You know, you, you're Florida, so you don't come to Carolina, vice versa. There's one champion who travels around the world. Wrestling is kind of made out to be legitimate and real for the most part. And that means then if someone comes up to you and you're a big time wrestler in a bar and says, hey, you're that tough guy wrestler, you got to fight. Right. So a guy came up and was like, you're Terry Funk. And he's like, yes, I am Terry Funk. I want to shake your hand for coming over to say hello to me. And a guy shakes his hand. He holds on to it too much. So then they get into a fight. <laughs> That's uh, such a stupid reason to get into a yeah, fight with uh, someone. The, he, he hit him on the head with like a beer bottle or something. The guy had fallen down. And when he'd fallen down, his trousers had come asunder. <laughs> Uh, I, now that we mentioned this should have been a wrestling angle this sounds it so great man's trousers fall asunder did he do a fart? no but his butt came out and then Terry says shit I'm mad as well and he dove down and bit a chunk out of his ass ah! and that was the end of that uh, he had to settle out of court for it for $750 and Terry said it was the most expensive piece of ass he'd ever had <laughs> hey that is disgusting a chunk of ass I can't think of anything more vile to do to a... Uh, imagine that in your mouth. Yeah! Ooh, tasting of iron. I mean, another great story of Terry Funk, who achieved legendary status in Japan and just kind of puts across that he's Terry Funk. Uh, he was in, in like the late 90s, he went touring in Japan with ECW and FMW, and he was with the Dudley Boys, and they were walking like right through central Tokyo to the main train station to, to catch a train to the next show. And Terry just goes, I gotta piss. And he walks over to a bin in public in Japan, takes his dick out and just starts pissing. And like everyone is like in the group are like, shit, because you know in Japan, public indecency and things like that, you know, yeah. they're very serious about it. And if you're, you're a foreigner doing something like that, you could end up on the wrong side of the law very easily. And Terry, just in broad daylight, pissing away with his dick out, just said, 
God damn it, I'm the funker. And no one paid any mind. Terry, that's disgusting. Isn't it? Terry, don't piss in bins. It's really unhygienic. Imagine the poor guy who has to clean that bin. Yeah, I mean, when I used to stay up watching wrestling pay-per-views and boarding school and sneaking don't down. Don't tell me you pissed in bins. I didn't, know, But one time a guy did piss in the bin. Why? And it's like, look, it's hard enough for sneaking down here to watch these shows without you leaving evidence behind. Yeah, I hope you'll bet him up. Yeah, and you, you, no, we didn't beat him up, oh. but... Uh, we asked him to strongly reconsider pissing in a bin. <laughs> the compromise was, could he at least put a bag in the bin next time? There wasn't even a bag. No, he rusted that bin. <laughs> Joe, we wanted to see Survivor Series 2002. It was a big night for all of us, okay? We put up with a lot back then. Jesus. Boys not, are disgusting. It's not easy being a wrestling fan when you're a smelly boy. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> now, are you aware of Terry Funk's kind of... Uh, wrestling heritage like his family and whatnot their involvement i know his dad was i think he was a wrestler he was definitely involved in wrestling didn't he own his own territory his own promotion yes so his dad would have been a big he would have been one of the kind of the big promoters in texas he booked amarillo which was terry's hometown amarillo i've never been uh, but it just sounds like the name amarillo it sounds like a delicious liqueur isn't that where hank hill is from Hammer, no, he's from Arlen, but uh, Arlen, I think, in kayfabe is close to Amarillo, like because right. they mentioned going to Amarillo, like it's the big town or whatever, a few times. So uh, I'm not sure if you meant to pronounce it Amarillo or Amarilla, because Terry always calls it Amarilla, but I think that could be just the accent coming mm-hmm. through there. So yeah, his dad was Dory Funk Senior, who was a kind of legendary wrestler in Texas at the time. Dory Funk is a great name. Yeah, his brother Dory Funk Junior, then who's his slightly older brother. He is kind of more of the obvious heir apparent. Like he, I don't I mean, I showed you a promo where Dory Funk was there. If you remember, it's the FF and F, the Funk Funk Florida promo. And Terry's there talking ages and going crazy. And there's this very serious straight-laced man in a white cowboy oh, hat. yeah. And I'd like to thank my brother Terry for his very colourful comments about the wrestling that will be taking place in Florida. A very boring wrestler. Yeah, I mean, Dory Funk is... Uh, uh, an interesting fellow in his own right and very legendary figure and has trained many, many wrestlers. But I guess the point is is that Terry's dad was a promoter, a top guy and, you know, a, a big name wrestler back in the 60s and the 50s. Which, I mean, what do you reckon wrestling was like back in those days? I mean... <laughs> oh God, I don't even know. I imagine it's very carny. Yeah, a carny. Uh, what do we mean by that term? Um, well, I think we discussed it, didn't we? In, I can't remember which episode it was. One of our earlier ones where we talk about the, the territories before Vince came along and mm. sucked them all up like a milkshake. <laughs> and there was a lot of like... Well, for one, kayfabe was very much law. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of people who were involved in wrestling families there and parents would like keep it from them that there were... The wrestling was kind of staged. But Terry didn't find out until he was a teenager, like 14, 15. Right. So he, his entire childhood, he grew up thinking his dad was... Wrestling for real. Was wrestling for real. Yeah. But like, that includes when they went to Canada for a stint where he was wrestling under a mask as an evil villain and the fans were like booing him out of the building and trying to kill him. And Terry was just like, well, I didn't think anything of it because we had went to Canada and my dad was a proud Texan and was very proud of Texas. And I thought, well, the people in Canada must be very proud of their home. Aww. And they were simply telling us that by trying to kill your dad. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, kayfabe was so, so kind of a big thing back then 
that they would even like you know if someone wanted to become a wrestler you had to like you know like we talked a little bit about with bread as well with Stu Hart you know they would stretch people to see are you do you really want to be a wrestler like a lot of shooters and things like that and even it went to the point that rival promotions back in those days they would line their cards up with guys who were legitimately like good shooters kind of like a Stu Hart type right in case anyone came from one of the other shows and you know hopped the barricade or tried to expose them as being phony that they had these legitimate guys there that could break someone's legs if needs be what there's a story Terry told I don't know if you remember it about his dad and the mafia early on oh yes <laughs> His dad had to go on the run, didn't he? Um, well, Terry had to go on the run. Oh, it was Terry who had to go Terry on the run. Terry had to go on the run for a little bit. Yeah, relating to the mafia. But his dad, as well, also had dealings with so, the mafia. If I remember correctly, someone from the mafia came to a wrestling show. Yeah. And was like... I can't remember if he owed them money or if he was just like, we're going to beat you up. They, they, they basically came saying, like, this is a big event that's been run in town you know, got to pay up. These guys say they're tough. We'll send down the tough or, or tough mob enforcers and we'll show them what it's like. And they literally, like, this, the fact that this happened for real and it wasn't just a made-up angle, like, literally one night, Terry Funk's dad, and this is when he was still relatively junior in, in, in wrestling in, in his career, they had, like, him versus a mob enforcer. Like, the mob enforcer was the open challenge kind of thing. Anyone come and wrestle like a, Dory a, Funk. Not a real mob enforcer, but a fake one. No, no. The real the, the mob oh. sent their real enforcer. They would do a thing where Dory Funk would be like, anyone come and wrestle Dory Funk, he's a legit shooter. Oh, I see. You know, see if he can do it. They send in, you know, Johnny you know, Johnny the Legs or whoever. Well, thinking that if they won... That they'd, they'd be like, look, you know, we, we can shut down your wrestling show anytime we want with our, with our muscle and whatnot. You better pay up to us. <laughs> so, yeah, essentially, they left them alone because... Dory Funk Sr. bet the shit out of their enforcer. <laughs> and it was like, Terry said that as soon as it happened, you could see all these like well-dressed men in suits just leave. They're like, fuck it, it's not worth it, you know? Wow. And he wrestled for like $10 a night as well. They'd wrestle hour-long draws routinely. God. Wrestling was weird back then. But you know, we're going to talk a lot about how Terry obviously has influenced hardcore wrestling and deathmatch wrestling and all that stuff and wrestling as a whole. But his dad in the 50s and 60s was... The first person I can recall in America who had the moniker the King of the Deathmatch. Ah. So Deathmatch as a term was invented in America at least by Terry's dad. Wow, so, that's really cool. Yeah, so I mean that's a nice moniker to have to you that you came up with something called a deathmatch. Yeah. I mean, what is a deathmatch in your in your estimation? It's kind of like a fight to the death. Yeah. Uh, in inverted commas. A, a, it's like a a match that's going to end up with probably both people absolutely exhausted, almost broken, <laughs> unable to do anything other than crawl out of the ring. I think the only Texas death match you and I have watched on this podcast was Sandman versus Cactus Jack, the one where he got concussed. Did we not watch one for Jimmy Havoc? Oh, I think, of course, that was a death, yeah, that was a death match as well, you're right. So, yeah, very, very violent indeed they can be. So, I mean, Terry tells stories of, like, you know, how his dad and... You know, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, his dad, they had matches to determine who's going to be the king of the death match. They'd wrestle for three hours. Jeez. The only match on the card would be Dory Funk versus Mike DiBiase, three hours, and the match only ended when the fire marshal came to shut the building down. <laughs> That's the pretty... janitor came out with the broom, like, <laughs> sweeping up. Turning the lights on and off, like, come on, guys, get out of here. But, yeah, uh, I thought, I buy into the kayfabe of Terry Funk saying that... Uh, 
his home his home was the Double Cross Ranch, and I thought that his dad owned the Double Cross Ranch and his father before him. Uh, his dad did work for a ranch, but it was a boy's ranch. What's a boy's ranch? That sounds really creepy. A boy's ranch? And Terry says in his book, it could only have existed in the 50s and 60s. Oh, no, it's not going to be like like a ranch for horses, but instead of keeping them horses in stables, they keep boys and they like train the boys to like ride around the stables. And or... then the ranchers come and they buy the boys yeah. and then they ride around on the boys and they make the boys play their fields. Awful child trafficking system. I mean, there's an element of trafficking to it, I guess, because boys come across state lines, but basically it would be like if there was a troubled boy whose parents were like, I don't know what to do with my boy. Or a boy whose parents had uh, you know, passed away and needed care. So but an orphan. It could be a mixture of orphans, undesirables, uh, like boys who had maybe committed crimes or done serious things and they had Bad been spared. boys. Bad boys, more. Boys who other people didn't want to take care of. Like right. Terry would say like stories that his dad would literally pick up a phone and it would be someone from like California, like hundreds of miles away and be like, yeah, we got a kid here. We don't want to send him to juvenile hall or whatever, but he's got nowhere to go. Have you got a space at the ranch? He'd be like, yeah, fine, whatever. And it would be like, kind of like an orphanage in the sense that they all live together, the boys, but they, you know, would do like classes, they would do work, they do sports. Oh, sounds nice. Just sounds like a boarding school. It, it does. I mean, Terry lived at the boys' ranch with the other boys, so Terry growing up was kind of around a crowd of much older boys. Uh, Terry started smoking cigarettes when he was four years old. Four! <laughs> four! Four! And I thought my dad, you know, when he was like eight or nine, whatever, had the, had the record. But yeah, four years old. When he said young, I was like, oh, ten. That would be really four. sad. Four? Yeah. I mean, he Four? The type of boy that they had, he told a story. There was, like, a kid who was, like, ten years old, and he was known as, like, a problem kid. And, like, Dory, obviously, would be running the matches, and he'd bring the kids to the matches as, like, a treat. Like, if you if you, if you you were uh, well-behaved during the week, you got to go see the matches at the weekend. And he was literally like, oh, no, I think I left, you know, some piece of equipment in my car. Here, Jimmy, can you go grab it? Gives his keys to this, like, ten or eleven-year-old just to go open up the boot. Kid steals the car, drives all around Amarillo, flips the car over, completely wrecks it, like, you know, and he, he did it, like, two more times, apparently. No. Just the type, you know, the kind of the wild, uncontrollable kids. And I think the idea was that Dory Funk was a legitimate tough wrestler who was known to be a tough guy. So, yeah, you're sending your boys to this known tough guy. I think it's the equivalent of sending them to a nun in Ireland or something. <laughs> so they weren't taught wrestling at the ranch? I mean, they did, no, they did do, like wrestling but it wasn't like they were breaking them into the business it would have been like amateur Sports wrestling yeah. and stuff yeah they, they weren't particularly gifted athletically there is a story in the book about <laughs> terry's uncle who was like really like kind of quite thin and light and a short fellow compared to the rest of the family and the boys ranch always lost at football games they without question they always lost and one time it looked like they were about to possibly win one of the boys got injured, so they didn't have enough. So they got like the forty-five-year-old uncle to put on a helmet and be like, "Pretend you're 12. Like, oh my god! And they won. They won the big game. Yay! A forty-five-year-old what professional wrestler? <laughs> I mean, he managed to slip in there, you know. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to find out about wrestlers who've got dads who are also wrestlers. But I don't think Terry had the relationship with his dad that like that Brett and Stu did, for instance. It seemed to be much more harmonious. Really? Kind of, by and large. Yeah, because 
he just respected and admired his dad. He didn't have, like, his brother, the two of them got on very, very well, for the most part. Dory was very, very quiet. Terry was more of the kind of the, the wild child or whatever. But I think probably part of that as well is the fact that Dory Sr. died tragically young and in really tragic circumstances. Do you know much about the passing of Terry's dad? Uh, I don't really know anything about his his dad. Well, his dad's passing is kind of a, a moment that impacted Terry like massively throughout his his career. Uh, it's really scary to think of how how it happened. But like, his dad was like mid fifties, and you know they had like a nice cookout. The family are all over. Uh, eventually, everyone starts resting around, and his dad's like, "Whoo, you know, I think I need to sit down for a second. And he goes, he sits down. And he's like, "Boys, I think I'm having a heart attack." Like, oh, okay. So they ring up uh, the hospital and send an ambulance and there's, there's nowhere nearby that has an ambulance. They're like, sorry, you're going to have to drive to get to the, to the hospital in Amarillo. Oh my God. So they drive for like 90 minutes to get there. And then, so the hospital they actually ended up getting to didn't have the actual electrocardiogram to test his heart. And the paddles that they had took like 30 minutes to charge up. What? So Cumbie's like, clear. They were like, yeah, we have to wait half an hour or thereabouts. So just hang tight there. And he's like, okay, having a heart attack here. And then like when they couldn't get it to work, they're like, right, we have to go to the other hospital then, I guess. We'll get you in an ambulance. And they're driving. It's like, how long is it going to be to get to the other ambulance? It's like, uh, two hours, I think. Oh my God. And literally in the back of the ambulance, Terry's dad turned to him like while he was in his arms. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to die now. I'm not going to make it. And he died in his arms like 57 years old oh that's like my worst nightmare it's so scary and it's just like how do you live with that because you know <laughs> that seems so avoidable doesn't it i don't know i mean we're living in a time with significant nhs cuts and stuff yeah. like that still happens today it's Oh, but it's just, what's so sad is that that was, I'm sure, part of the norm back yeah, then. Yeah, I think so. Like back is, in, oh. would have been probably the 70s or thereabouts that yeah. would have been. And that's just kind of part of life back then. So, I mean, Terry got into wrestling at, you know, pretty young age. He was broken in by his dad. He had obviously the, the fast track, so to speak. But I think his dad had, dying had one of the biggest impacts of his career and the way his career kind of panned out because... Um, when his dad died, he was like, right, I'm going to commit myself 100,000% to wrestling. Like, this is going to be everything. I'm going to eat, breathe, and sleep wrestling. Like, throw himself into his work. You know, he was away from his home the entire time, away from his wife, Vicky, and his kids. And he lost loads of weight because he was overworking himself. He went through a period of time where he kept thinking he was going to have a heart attack like his dad. And here's one for you, folks. Uh, Terry Funk suffered really badly during this period from, from panic attacks. Really? Yeah, there was like three or four times where he was like, Dory, you got to take me to the hospital. I'm having a heart attack. I'm going to die like dad. Oh, and he's having a panic attack because they like, feel the same. Yeah. Ah. And his book, it's like, it's amazing what the mind can do. And it's like, hey, I'll tell you what, you know, I've been there. We're having a heart, you know, think you're having a heart attack. Yeah, it feels like you're dying. It does. Like a panic attack, It's that's bad. And I mean, I didn't, I haven't had any close family die of a heart attack. So like, you know, the times I've had panic attacks where it's felt like, it's like the times I've had panic attacks have been so bad where the heart's been like that. Mm -hmm. It's been like, oh, news to me. I've got a heart condition, I guess. I'm going to die now. Yeah. But if your dad had died in your arms of a, fucking hell, like. Oh, I can't even imagine. That's so sad and scary. So his wife, Vicky, who he met in like fifth grade. So they literally met each other when they were like fucking babbies. Oh. But fifth she, grade that's fifth like grade. when you're like seven or something isn't it eight maybe uh, seven or eight there about yeah i mean 
Young, seven, anyway. Pepper Ann was much too cool for seventh grade, and she was like 11 or 12, so he would have been like nine or something thereabouts. Yeah, so very young. But oh. she she divorced him during this period because she was like, you aren't here for the family. You're completely self-obsessed and self-absorbed. And Terry essentially then from that point made the decision after being split up with her. He was divorced for around a year or thereabouts. He was like, right, I can't put wrestling first. My family is always going to come first. And that's why Terry never stuck around any one place very long. That's why Terry would go somewhere for a few months, maybe a year, a couple of matches. But he wanted to spend the majority of his time at home. And I know it's kind of an odd thing to kind of talk about at the start. But I do think when it comes to figuring out why his career took this weird kind of journeyman, elder statesman path, the fact that his dad died so young and he saw himself, the impact of overworking mm. had upon himself. That I think it's funny to talk, that we're talking about a guy who like said he's going to prioritise his family and he's still wrestling when he's fucking yeah. 73 or whatever it was. So yeah, those are some kind of big things there. Um, obviously no shortage of sadness. So um, has he ever had a heart attack, Terry? No, he's not. Wow, that's amazing. So he, he has like, he's obviously looked after himself even though he's this deathmatch, hardcore wrestler. I mean, like, Terry's accrued so many injuries throughout his career. I mean, we, we watched Beyond the Man way back in the day. And there's a bit in there, and that's 1987. And the doctor's like, Terry, we've had a look at your x-ray. And on the right knee, you've got degenerative to severe arthritis. Uh, your left knee, you have no cartilage left. Jesus. Uh, you need a new knee. And then later on, he's main event in the first ECW pay-per-view and winning the championship. Wow. And to this day, Terry Funk has never gotten a new knee. What? <laughs> And he's caused like, his, this is his rationale. He never got a new knee because the knees that were available at the time had a shelf life of 10 to 15 years. Which they meant, still do, don't they? Yeah. Which meant that if he got a new knee in 1997, yeah. it meant that between 2007 and 2012, he would have had to have another operation mm-hmm. to get it done again, which could have cut his wrestling career short. And I do wonder as well, how if they would have even let him wrestle after a knee replacement well i think terry funk is the bare definition of no one's gonna let him or not let him he seems to be the sole decider i mean they say he says like hey doc with this knee can i can i get around comfortably still and he's like well you should be in severe debilitating pain right now and terry's like <laughs> okay i can i i can deal with this level of apparently severe debilitating pain I have no idea of what his pain threshold must be it's like it's it's too much to, to, yeah. to even imagine <laughs> having no cartilage that means that his bones yeah. scrapes against yeah my, my stepdad had a knee operation he had a knee replacement and his cartilage wore just wore down a bit he didn't even go down all the way and he was in constant pain fucking hell I can't even imagine that You'd be able to feel it. Yeah. Every time you walk, like, you know. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Fucking hell. But yeah, Terry did, you know, follow, obviously, in the family footsteps. He was a wrestler for the territory. He wrestled throughout the NWA. He was even the NWA's world heavyweight champion. And this is during the 70s, so before there was Vince McMahon. So that was a very, very big deal. That meant that he had to wrestle all the territories all across America. He'd travel around. And it seemed like a bit of a bullshit deal. For him in many respects. Uh, first thing that's weird. Only one of his championship defences. From his the time he was champion. Is actually on film. 
That's so weird. That's so crap, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's really annoying. Like not having, like, you so... Like, a lot of Terry's work is lost to time, it seems. And is it just Terry, or is that just the fact of, like, wrestling at that time? You know, film was expensive, it was mm. not very accessible. Yeah, well, same reason why we don't have the original Doctor Who's and a lot of the yeah. Beatles at the BBC. Yeah, I, I think it's just a fact that if you were a big name back then, a lot of the stuff is, is lost to, to the ether of time. So would it be the same with, like, Jerry Lawler? Uh, no, Jerry Lawler is different because Jerry Lawler pretty much owns the tape library for everything he's ever wrestled for. Really? Yeah, he he he's got that Memphis tapes with with Jimmy Hart. Like he's been very smart about that. Oh uh, wow! <laughs> yeah, Jerry's often the exception to the rule in more ways than one. Mm. But you know, Terry would talk talk about the fact that he was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, and he would get on a private Lear jet, which in the seventies that's pretty pretty lush thing yeah. a private jet and if he put on a private jet and been flown from say North Carolina he's going to go all the way up to Canada to do some shots up there and then he get paid like $300 <laughs> and he's kind of like hmm something's not quite right here <laughs> that's such I mean I I never want to be like just come across like I'm a massive like WWE apologist and stuff like that and obviously the NWA was fabulous in its own right and brought many great wrestlers and it's as a territory system where people can go and learn. It was great, but I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't think the people at top were a little bit acting like fucking crooks. Oh yeah, for sure. I think it just goes in wrestling that whoever's in charge. Yeah. It seems to. I be. don't think it's even just wrestling. I think it's inherent that power corrupts, isn't mm. it? It's one of those things. Power plus lack of oversight. And it's been proven scientifically that the more money you have, the less empathy you are able to experience. Really? Yep, scientifically proven. Well, Terry Funk had a lot of empathy at this point in time, <laughs> let's just say. So like a lot of wrestlers at the time, he went over to Japan to wrestle. And in Japan in the 70s, it was probably one of the most tribal, virulent wrestling wars ever because there was all Japan wrestling and New Japan wrestling. And you wrestled for one or the other, never both. It was like you had total loyalty to... If you were in all Japan, Giant Baba, who ran it, he was your fucking god, lord and saviour. If you're in New Japan, it was Antonio Inoki. And that was it was so serious. Like, to the point where Terry was like, if I saw Antonio Inoki even to this day, I think we may fight each other. <laughs> you're both in your 70s. Don't. <laughs> and, of course, going into Japan is where Terry Funk found a penchant for being a performer, for music, and also acting as well. Now, we had a lot of people asking us about Terry Funk's album, Joe. Mm -hmm, which we talked about almost extensively in our live episode about music. For those who've been silly and not checked out that fabulous episode, how would you describe Great Texan, Terry Funk's debut hot album? He's not a natural singer, is he? <laughs> he's not been blessed with the gift of a beautiful singing voice. I mean, he's he's fine. I think as far as wrestling albums go, it's, it's one of the better ones. Yeah. Really? <laughs> but the standard is very low. <laughs> it isn't as good as Be A Man by Macho It's Amanda. not as good as Be A Man. Okay. But that's mostly rap. And I think that style of rap is easier than Terry Funk's style of singing. I mean, with the material that Terry was working with, with songs like We Hate School, like, yeah. you know, and he's fucking 40 or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, a bit difficult there. Now, acting as well is something else that he found his uh, his hand in. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a close personal friends with Sylvester Stallone. Oh, my God. <laughs> So Sylvester Stallone was like obsessed with uh, wrestling and made a movie called Paradise Alley about wrestling and he brought on Terry Funk to be like in the movie but also to be the fight coordinator and Terry ended up being the fight coordinator for a couple of the Rocky movies. Oh wow. Which is like 
Amazing. Uh, obviously, Roadhouse, big movie he was in. Uh, Over the Top as well. Uh, arm wrestling movie with Sylvester Stallone. Mm-hmm. You saw some of his advertising work. I did. I saw a uh, commercial he did for Wendy's, which is amazing, where they have these like two burgers. And one is like, I mean, they both look fucking gross, but one is obviously supposed to be like the aesthetically more appealing option, which yeah. is the Wendy's burger. I mistook them. I, really? I, I start Because I was like, oh, the small burger is like, it's Wendy's. It's 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 not audacious and over the top like yeah. this obvious, ridiculous, uh, crazy burger, this Mondo <laughs> burger that they're serving. But no, I, I got them mixed up. Yeah. And the, uh, there's a guy on who brings on Terry and he's like, you know, I have these two burgers. Which one would you like more? This, this lovely, luscious, you know, delicious burger with like all these fillings or this horrible old dry stale burger that's been left out on the side for hours and terry's like i want the hard one it's it's hard like my deltoids <laughs> I, I said to you it said like he was channeling randy savage in it very like. much so yeah so why do you think terry got so heavy into like the acting and stuff like that i mean i think he's probably one of the most like one of the like he's got one of the longer filmographies. Maybe Roddy Piper hasn't beat in terms of our mm. back catalogue, but certainly one of the longest ones. I mean, I've not seen any of the films that he's in, but the Wendy's commercial, he was really good. Mm. Like he seems to have a natural gift for it, so it makes sense to me that he would go that way. Oh man, a Roadhouse Cinema Swirl crossover might be something we have to do yeah. at some point in the future. Swayze Swirl. <laughs> <laughs> you go crazy on the Swayze train. Uh, he has described it in interviews. The reason why he did as much acting as he did wasn't, you know, because he had a particularly great love of acting. I mean, he said he thought it was quite easy to do compared mm. to wrestling, and the money was was great compared to wrestling. But it was so he could get Screen Actors Guild membership, which meant that he got insurance. Oh my god! And if you did X amount of hours of filming and shooting in a year. Then you got to do it. And he like, he did like a couple of TV shows, a couple of pilots for series. Like he did a lot of shows and things. And there was times where it was like, yeah, the shooting's been delayed on this for another week. And he's like, fine, that's great. That means I'm closer to getting my hours for my Screen Actors Guild health insurance. Wow, that's really clever. But I don't think anyone's actually picked up on that. Because you can imagine with Terry Funk, getting insurance must be yeah. pretty fucking hard. Yeah, seriously. Like really crazy difficult. I'm amazed more wrestlers haven't done that yeah fucking smart it's so smart and i imagine you could still do it today and again this is only reason terry was able to do this is that you know coming into the 80s where you had people getting signed up now to to be in kind of more binding contracts be it with vince's wwf or with the awa or people kind of some of the territories were consolidating in carolina and whatnot terry was just going wherever he wanted to we know one reason is because he wanted to be with his family and also so he could kind of Cut himself to his own cloth, make the money that he needed to make and get his insurance and do the jobs he wanted to. I think it's one of the most inspiring things to see in wrestling, someone who makes it on their own without the need for another big company. Like, yeah. uh, I mean, his relationship with Vince McMahon is a quite an interesting one. Uh, he wrestled for Vince briefly in the 80s, like maybe a year or so. He was involved in WrestleMania 2, I think. Right. Uh, came back... In 1995, he was going to be brought in to work a match as a replacement for Jerry Lawler, who had been done in for some allegations. And the night before, Terry decided, I don't want to do this. I don't want to work for Vince McMahon. So he left him a note. And the note said, my horse is sick. I think he's dying. i got to go. <laughs> now, how do you think Vince McMahon, of all people, would react to such a note? I d- I've no idea. It's such a... 
Because I don't think Vince McMahon would respond well to any sort of person being like reneging on a commitment. Mm. But it's such a a weird excuse to give. I always almost imagine that he'd be okay with it. My horse is sick. I think he's dying. I'll see you later. I hope that Vince didn't even read the note. Like someone came to go, Vince, it was Terry's Terry's left note. What does it say? Um, his horse is sick. Uh, I think he thinks it's dying, and you'll see you later. <laughs> And when he came, he signed back with Vince like nearly 10 years later in 1997. And the first thing Vince said was, how's that horse doing of yours? <laughs> what horse? Oh, uh... He died. It was very sad. <laughs> so we're going to get into one of our first matches now. And narrowing down Terry's career has been very, very difficult. And I think we've always said on this show, this is never meant to be an exhaustive retrospective of someone's career but more to give you a sense and a taste of the type of person they were and the type of character they were. And I, much like you, thought primarily of Terry as goatee Terry with a bandana saying, hey everybody, how's it going? You know, a nice soft-spoken guy. I was not prepared really to deep dive as we have into the world of no goatee, slightly short curly hair, heel, late 70s, early 80s Terry Funk. Boy Terry. Boy Terry. So this is the first you've seen of Boy Terry. I mean, I had seen the, fir- the first bit of this that I had shown you from his kind of Memphis, Florida oh, time. Oh, his infamous promo where he pours oil on himself. Can you describe, I mean, I knew that one for going well back. So as soon as we were doing this episode, I'm like, Joe, Joe, come here. Terry's pouring motor oil on himself. And now he's got sand. What 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 was that promo? I can't even remember what he's talking about because all I remember is him showering in motor oil and then covering himself in sand. And it's all like in his eyes and stuff and his mouth. And it's just, oh, it's so disgusting. So basically, Jerry Lawler was going between Florida and Memphis, as was um, Terry Funk at the time. And Terry Funk, and I'm giving this a lot of fucking of, 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 of credit and explanation. But because Jerry was from Memphis, but was wrestling a lot down in Florida, Terry Funk reckoned that what Jerry Lawler deep down in his heart wanted to be was a dirty Florida cracker. And which meant that he had to be a greasy, smelly, dirty Florida cracker, which is why he poured all the motor oil on himself. Cracker is in colloquial term for white person. Yeah. Oh, cool. As in, like, white trash type of... Yeah, yeah. The people down here are smelly and sweaty because it's so humid and everyone's always dirty. So he just (laughs) covers himself in this grit. And, like, motor oil is... That's got a fuck... He was like... Smell. He said he nearly got blinded by it in some Ah! interviews. Now, when we put out the tweet for this at the start, and, you know, we we asked specifically promos as well, because Terry is a masterful promo guy, we got a lot of... People sending this one in of, of Terry Funk dousing himself in motor oil. I mean, is it is it a preferred promo for you of his? I mean, my favorite promo of his is got to be the one where he's at the ranch with a horse, and he's you mean, and he's meant to be finding Eddie Gilbert. Yeah, yeah, and he's got his arm around this horse, but the horse is facing away from the camera, so it's just this big horse bum. <laughs> And he's talking to, to the camera and he's like, I don't know where Eddie Gilbert is. And then he turns around and he looks at the horse's bum. He's like, oh, there you are, Eddie. <laughs> and he has this like protracted conversation with the horse's ass. He ends up like lifting the tail out of the way. And yeah, the horse farts. The horse and he's farts. Like, like, wow, your, your breath still... You, you look different, but your breath still smells the same, Eddie. <laughs> uh, my other favourite Terry Funk promo was... <laughs> which I basically described as being like a Monty Python sketch... Because it's like this really like... And it's Terry Funk in a beat-up old dirty pickup truck 
riding from the horizon up to the front, and then he gets out, and he's like, I'm Terry Funk, and I'm double tough, and if you're double tough, you need a double tough truck, and he just starts beating up his truck with his hands. <laughs> what a great fucking promo. But in regards to the Florida Cracker one, he said himself he never liked that promo, because um, it really hurt to do it, it stung his eyes. Was it his idea? Yeah. Well, he's a stupid man. Yeah. Don't come up with ideas that involve pouring motor oil in your eyes. I mean, you know, Terry's done a lot of big firsts in wrestling, and maybe that was the... He's doing that so other people don't have to. He's been in... Yeah, you can't imagine fucking Jerry Lawler doing that. Can you imagine? Yeah, Jerry already makes his own grease. He doesn't Uh... need to add any, Joe, so it's okay. But yeah, he said it hurt doing it, and he got the stuff in his eyes. Even as he was doing the promo, he was like, this is a bad idea. Uh, secondly, he said the match that the promo was for didn't actually draw a particularly good house. Oh. So he's like, what, why do people think it's a good promo? He, he, It's only a good promo if it's followed up with yeah. a packed house, which I think is a very interesting way of l- looking at if a promo is good or not. Fair mm-hmm. point. like. And then the other one was that the oil didn't come off him for like a month. Oh, no. Every time he showered, he'd still have like a film of this motor oil on him. His poor wife. Well, yeah, Vicky got angry with him because he ruined her best pillowcases. Oh. And that was kind of like too far. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> but um, he'll, he'll Terry when he's younger. And Memphis specifically. We had a look at his feud with Jerry Lawler. And we're going to talk a little bit about what comes after the match. But this match is one of the most bizarre unique and we're going to be saying this more than once i think on this list of matches that we have but this is one of the most bizarre unique strange things and fascinating i think is the word to describe it joe what was our first match for how to terry funk our first match was terry funk versus jerry lawler in what is called an empty arena match so this is from memphis in uh, 1981 the mid-south coliseum which normally could hold 11,000 people and there's no one in the stands uh, empty arena match I mean had you heard about this as a concept before I've heard about it but I've never seen one <laughs> I mean obviously you've seen it now but like when you hear the concept what like did you imagine it was going to be like a train wreck or do you think it was something that was interesting I mean how, how does it strike you as a concept I thought it would be boring because there's no one there's no crowd there mm to react to the moves and everything. And so much of the pacing of a match is determined by the crowd's reaction in wrestling. Yeah, true. Particularly with someone like Jerry Lawler, who yeah. we saw Jerry wrestle in our Kurt Hennig episode. It was all crowd work. Yeah, a look to the crowd and the crowd are on their feet cheering and chanting for him. So yeah, I kind of thought this would be a bit of a dull match. And I also, I assumed an empty arena match would still have the staff. I thought there'd still be a referee. I thought there'd still be like, you know, a ring announcer. Bell Chimer, whatever they're called. Timekeeper. Timekeeper. I prefer Bell Chimer. Bellman or Bellwoman, you know. Um, it's. <laughs> Did it shock you then that so many people were saying, you have to? No, you have to. Because there were a lot of tweets where people were like, look, I know Joe hates Jerry Lawler, but you can't do this episode and not do this match. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is, like, the story of this match, if you could describe it? So, Terry Funk believes correctly by the way that the crowd is on jerry lawler's side of course the crowd is on jerry lawler's side this is memphis in the 80s jerry lawler was a huge huge part of wrestling in memphis he was like the absolute golden boy of wrestling at this time Mm. so the crowd do love him he is a face 
That is correct. Oh yeah, no, Jer- Jerry was uh, was a face at the time. Yeah, very beloved. <laughs> it's hard to see Terry Funk at this time being a face. So yeah, just ter- assumed. He's kind of different to the Terry that we've seen at other points, though, right? He's not soft spoken anymore, or I say anymore. He's not soft spoken at this point. He's he's very yelly and screamy and a high bit, pitched at times. High pitched, yeah, a bit mad. He's kind of like he's hunched over a little bit. Like he's kind of got this rage fucking flowing through mm. him. Like he describes it in his book about when he becomes heel. He's like, I do not know how to describe it, but when I am a heel, I truly hate the people. And this does not start when the match begins or when I come to the arena. It begins long before then. Like he is in his mind, fucking hates every motherfucker in that crowd. His poor wife. Like, but he would say like, like his brother and his wife, like after matches, they'd literally have to say like. Fucking calm down now. It's it's over now. You're still being Terry. And he's like, I don't know why I do it. I don't necessarily know if I like doing it. But he says that it's the thing that he likes most about wrestling is the fact that he can lose himself in this completely other version of himself. Which, when you see how scary he is in a lot of these promos and a lot of this stuff at this time, that's fucking scary. Because you kind of feel he's in so deep, you need someone to pull him back in. Yeah. So, yeah, Terry Funk believes the crowd's on Jerry Lawler's side, and therefore he has demanded an empty arena match, which is the first ever, the first ever empty arena match. And he thinks that if the crowd aren't there to be on Jerry Lawler's side, then he has a better chance of winning. I love that idea as a heel. Like, yeah. Heels are always against the crowd and against the fans, but at the end of the day, kayfabe aside, the heel wants there to be bums and seats, like, you know, because he wants to get paid. Yeah. And I just love the idea that this kind of went a bit beyond that. That this guy is so fucking demented, he doesn't even want a payday. He's going to front the cost of renting the Mid South Coliseum. Yeah. All right, Terry, that's a twenty thousand deposit, but whatever, man. <laughs> now the quality of this one was um, oh so bad. It was somewhat lacking. Hey, if you're someone who knows where this exists in higher quality, do let us know. The WWE Network and Terry Funk's career do not play along very, very well. Uh, Terry Funk is one of the few Hall of Famers who's not got a section on the new network layout, so finding some of his stuff can be a bit challenging. A lot of the Memphis stuff, though, is up on YouTube, but the reality is it's like you're watching some sort of a snuff movie because the quality is so poor. Yeah, this picture quality is so bad. It's like a cursed video that you might pick up from a car boot sale. And after you watch it, you only have seven days left to live. <laughs> Lance Russell's just there with a cigarette. Well, wrestling fans, you've done it. You've played this curse tape. And I'm here to inform you that in seven days at the Mid-South Coliseum, you will die by <laughs> haunted curse, which will be coming through your television screens. What do you think to old Lance Russell? He's considered to be one of the, one of the all-time greats on, the, on the, the commentary booth. I like him. He... We start the. Uh, I don't even want to say we start the match because we don't start the match. We start the segment. I mean, it's less of a match and more of like a short movie. Yeah, that's that's accurate. And you said beforehand that with this match they recorded it on a tape and then just like gave it to the to the promotion. It was like, yeah. here, play this tape. Yeah, literally the setup for this was them in in the the studio going. Terry Funk has sent sent us this tape. I mean, we're going to play it, I guess. We know he challenged, you know, he made a challenge for this empty arena match. We'll just put it in, I guess, and we'll see what it is. And, like, even when you're playing it, like, Lance Russell is like, look, I don't know if this is even going to happen. We're here. We were told to be here a little bit before one. He's kind of talking to himself more than anything. Yeah, and he's he's normally the quintessential professional. So he's there, like, you know, stubbing out his cigarette going, look, he says, if this takes place here, there'll be a record, I guess. If not, you're never going to see this. So what does it matter? <laughs> 
really intrigued in this match because Terry Funk will do like anything to inflict violence on himself and I'm pretty sure Lawler is like the polar opposite of that <laughs> and would do absolutely anything to avoid experiencing any pain whatsoever. No, that's true. I mean, I love like much... It's like the mismatch when you've got a real small wrestler against a really big wrestler. That's always very intriguing. But likewise, when you've got someone who is very hardcore inverted commas against... The king of soft style. Yeah. Uh, soft serve Jerry Lawler over here. Yeah. I mean, were you counting the number of bumps he took in this oh, one? Oh, I forgot to. I was going to. I, I got. I stopped after two because there were so few of them. I don't think he got into double digits if that's no. what you were enduring. Yeah. But I was pretty sure that this match would just be Jerry Lawler wandering around the room and Terry Funk throwing himself into all the empty chairs. <laughs> I mean, the entrances from these gentlemen that they take tell a lot about the individual characters. Terry's just like, they're, they're there thinking like it's not going to start and then like, they're like, oh, there's Terry Funk over there. Terry's arriving and straight away there's loads of beeps and beep, beep. You got beep, mother, but beep, where the gap, lawler, that chip, beep. And Lance is like, please, Terry, if you keep swearing, we won't be able to play the tape. We won't have the content. <laughs> <laughs> Terry says that Lawler doesn't have the intestinal fortitude to show. You're a fan of that phrase. I like that phrase a lot. I'm not sure if Terry coined intestinal fortitude, but I know it certainly inspired Mick Foley's use of testicular fortitude. Yeah. Uh, recent episode of SmackDown that Adam and I reviewed for SmackDown Crawl, he referred to ovariological fortitude, ah. which is an incorrect term. Ovarian fortitude, ah. I think, might be a, a better one that we could use. I see. There's something about mad Terry Funk turning to an empty arena with no one there saying... I told you people that Lawler has no guts. <laughs> Who are you talking to? Are they ghosts there? Is this like the, the end of The Shining or something? <laughs> <laughs> Whoever loses this match joins the audience in the Mid-South <laughs> Ghost Coliseum. Out comes Jerry Lawler and he's dressed like a toddler with a massive <laughs> hat on. Oh, come on. <laughs> he is. A toddler with a... Is it because he's all in white? Is that it? He's all in white and he's got a... He's got a silly big bum and he looks like he's wearing a nappy with his big white pants on. There's something about Jerry coming out still acting as if it's a sold out crowd. He walks he walks really slowly. And he stops to pause, look left yeah. and right, like you think he's connected with people. No, this is just a script, man. He runs to he looks left and right no matter what, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> fucking beard as well oh can we talk about jerry's awful fucking beard so jerry's beard which i only realized far too late in life i think it was after i'd watched man in the moon with you hmm. that it is actually a little crown it's shit though isn't it it's barely a crown with the little tiny i mean it's it's got three spokes on it that is the number of spokes that a crown traditionally has really though <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure if any crowd actually has that. Maybe the Ice King's crowd, but I can't think of any other yeah, ones. Yeah, I can't either. So, I mean, but it's representative of the hat that is on his head. Even so. though it's nothing like the hat on his head, because the hat on his head is all round. It looks like a chef's hat. <laughs> what hat is the goatee that Michael Cole has then? <laughs> you know the one I'm... What's the one? You know the one I'm talking yeah, yeah. about. It's a little fez. It's... <laughs> It's kind of like a little, like, he's extended his lip with facial hair. His lower lip, which just kind of appears underneath there. Might do that for the live show next no. year. Shave off the beard, have that nice little Michael Cole The tuft. lip shadow. Next year we'll be doing a special on WWE. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Jerry arrives late. And I wrote down that Jerry Lawler has got the power of imagination. 
because even though he needs the crowd to be there to, to, to win, uh, he's just imagining that they're all there. And I think that's what they're trying to get across, that the memories are so vivid of Jerry and the loving fans that he can just pretend and that's enough to get him through there. <laughs> I can't tell if this whole thing is really boring or really exciting. I had to say, this was the most fascinated I think I'd ever seen you watching a match for How To Wrestling. It wasn't like, I've seen you like, super engaged when you're kind of like, yeah. yeah! Or like, you know, you just get drawn in as a fan or you're not sure what's going to happen or you're quite scared or squeamish, you know, lots of emotions can come up. But you were literally like sitting there like trying to figure it out like with yeah. a furrow brow, like what, what am I actually watching? And yeah, it treads the fine line between being kind of banal and strange and not quite working but also massively fascinating completely innovative so different yeah jerry lawler coming out into an empty arena and then you can just hear terry funk going look at that jackass <laughs> you know i think one of the reasons why i was so into this is because terry mouths off a lot in the ring he does yeah and this is one of the few times where you could hear every little bit of it because it was you know the problem is it's older cameras, older footage. You don't often necessarily get to hear it in very good quality. But at least this time we could hear a bit more than usual of Terry Funk being Terry Funk in the ring and talking a lot. i got to say, I think Terry Funk calling Jerry Lawler a jackass has got to be one of my top spots for this match. Yeah, I like at the start when they're, they're being checked, uh, you know, just quickly make sure no one's got any uh, foreign objects on them. And uh, Terry Funk is like... Come on, Lawler, what have you got? Have you got a knife? Have you got a gun? <laughs> I mean, if he brought a gun to this empty arena match, that would have been pretty hardcore. Like, Yeah. The first offensive manoeuvre in the match is Terry Funk spitting on Jerry the King Lawler. Oh, I missed that. Does that get a retroactive top spot for spitting yeah, on the definitely. King? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Did it get in his eye? I mean, it made Jerry go... So... Maybe that's just because he doesn't like any sort of water getting on him. I'm not sure. Maybe it's yeah. like a cat just like gets uncomfortable when wet. Or a witch. Or a witch. A wicked witch. That is very much like Jerry Lawler. They have a lot of fun with the chairs. Terry just throws himself into them exactly like I thought would happen. Yeah, and then when Jerry goes into the chairs, it was fucking brilliant. He like kind of gently lies down on them. Yeah, so Terry throws them full force and Jerry's like, and he rolls and manages to like sit down. (laughs) And he's like, oh, oh, my knees are bent and my back is straight and my butt is just right here on this cushiony bit. (laughs) The fucking selling. Terry is vandalizing the furniture. Okay, one person's vandalization is another person's craftsmanship. Sure. Because Terry Funk crafts many weapons in this match. Yeah, he does. Like, out of furniture. As we all know in Minecraft, if you want to get a wooden spike, you have to get ring steps, and then you have to break them down, and then you get the wood planks, which you can then turn into a spike to try and take someone's eye. <laughs> I'm impressed that he's fashioned himself a spike somehow. I mean, very impressive. It's, I think it's the first time I've seen a wrestler make a weapon yeah in a match i mean i've seen people put barbed wire on things but him actually just getting a piece of wood and getting a sharp end of it i mean it starts out it's like a sign doesn't it yeah oh yeah he the first instance he smashes off a sign to get like a pole yeah but then after that he crafts another weapon where he oh is that not the same spike no I he broke it in half to make a spike he i think it was underneath the ring steps he took one of the two by fours and he just got a wow. big long splinter out of it now there's many things in, in life that I think are scary and would make someone go, Whoa. 
But the idea of a giant splinter going anywhere near your eye. Yeah. And even with this re... I mean, actually, you know what? If this was in higher quality than it was, this would have been very difficult, I think, to watch. It's difficult to watch as it is because it makes it seem even more cursed. So just to explain what happens, because I feel we've jumped a couple of steps. So Terry fashions himself a spike out of some furniture. And then the poor commentator, who's the only other person in the room, aside from Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler... And, and the cameraman's there too. Oh, the yeah. cameraman, I guess, as well. The poor commentator has to then do double duty as a referee because Terry starts to trying to attack Lawler with a spike by like trying to put it in Jerry's eye, which is great. I mean, I would love to see Jerry Lawler get blinded with a spike. Who <laughs> wouldn't? Christ. Who amongst us hasn't wanted to see that? But, you know, he maybe goes a bit far. The, the commentator has to interfere. But like, Terry has the spike and he's like, Ask him, ask him, and lands it. He's like, "All right, hang on a second. He takes his headset off and he like starts slowly walking to the <laughs> ring. It's like, if Terry had actually invited a few more people and there was a few more RSVPs, he would have won the damn match. Yeah. Like. <laughs> so then Lawler kicks Terry, and then a spike, ironically, as he's kicked, is the spike goes in Terry's eye. We had to rewind it a few times, but I, I loved. How it actually, like, he put it... Like, Terry's selling is so good. The way he swaggers and sways around. He conveys so much emotion in his selling compared to some other wrestlers where, you know, there's times you say the guys just sit there with their mouths open or just kind of a blank look on their face. Mm -hmm. Whereas if Terry gets hit, he starts flailing around, the arms start swinging. And that's what's so great. He's got the spike in his hand and he's kind of swinging around. And then Jerry just kicks his hand and the spike goes into his eye and... Whoa, what follows is one of the most harrowing, saddest, miserable, but I i mean, engrossing. I can't stop thinking about this. It's my second top spot. Yeah. Which is Terry screaming, help me, my eye, oh God, my eye. Where's the doctor? He's took my eye. Damn you, Lord, my eye. And in kayfabe for the rest of his career, he had a bad eye, inverted commas. Really? As in, like, Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler had a match in, like, 2005 at an indie show, and again in 2015, and the whole basis of it was, you took my eye, Lawler, goddammit, I'm gonna get my revenge on you. <laughs> now, that's great. To flash forward a little bit from that, like, one of the first things I showed Joe when we were watching this was uh, an, a, a Terry Funk match that I had seen that captivated me early in, in my wrestling fandom, which was from ECW's One Night Stand in 2006, where he similarly, he gets hit over the eye, he bleeds over the eye, and then he just starts, he starts moving his two index fingers in front of his eyes Mm. if he's trying to check his vision. And again, he starts moaning about his eye. Mm. And I can't stop thinking about it. It's so good. Why is that sounding, is it just that he's pointing out the thing that is sore, or what is it? I think that's it. I think... If you mention specifically the body part that is injured, it's easier to relate and empathise with. Because I think so often in wrestling, someone gets attacked and then they're just like general selling, which is just sort of writhing in pain ah. and going, ah, ah. And then you- the announcer might be like, oh, he's got to be feeling the effects of that on this body part. Like yeah. the commentators are meant to tell you what they're selling is, is. They often don't. No. <laughs> and then so you're just left kind of guessing generally where they might be hurting. And it doesn't, have the same impact I think that as when someone's like specifically saying like oh my god my leg my foot my arm my eye 
The eye is is a particularly scary really one. Really scary. Because we can all, I think, relate to the fear of losing an eye. That's, you know, very frightening. Yeah. I mean, Jerry Lawler obviously has that fear now after you've fucking called about, like, you're coming for Jerry Lawler's <laughs> eye. Uh, so this was, I think you're right in saying, it, in, in many ways it wasn't a match. Because it was very short once the actual action started. Yeah. But I think that almost worked to his advantage, given the fact that it didn't go on long enough that you could actually, for a moment, go, where's the crowd? Or, this is weird. You yeah. know, I can't stop thinking about this match. I, honestly, <laughs> it's, And I I have a lot of stuff in my head that I can't stop thinking about at the moment. But I, genuinely, I think this is one of the most harrowing things I've seen as a fan. Like, the way Terry's eye nearly got taken at the end and his bellowing and his screaming mm. I love seeing a coward get their come up and yeah, wrestling it's so satisfying does this match have a rating from you Joe? yes it does I gave it 4 stars out Ooh. of 5 I really enjoyed this match I think why would you dock <laughs> it why would you dock it star points? the picture quality is, is bad it's mm. really 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 bad and I think for anyone who struggles to watch something that is of low quality like if you don't enjoy say watching the PWG because the mm. quality isn't good enough this isn't the match for you right okay. there's a lot of peering and kind of trying to figure out you know what what's going on there like I didn't even see that he was holding a spike yeah because it's too pixelated himself in the eye yeah yeah so I think that's 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 fair. I think the fact that it scored so highly in spite of that, because when we started watching, I was like, "Fuck it, here's this legendary match. We're gonna have to watch mm. it in such garbage quality now that it's gonna be a real chore." And it was still really, yeah. really powerful and really, really strong. Well, I'm very, very glad that uh, you enjoyed it, and I also now have to ask you to describe to people what happened when Terry Funk showed up with his new eye patch after Jerry Lawler took his eye. Do you remember this? Um, quite insane promo that we watched all i remember is he starts like screaming and yelling and stuff about his eye and uh he, beat up a chair he beat up a chair he like goes on a bit of a spree and starts to like attack all the furniture again beats up and there's a wrestling match happening he beats everyone oh yeah up. he beats everyone up yeah i forgot about that and he comes out and he's like basically in tears and he's meant to be like, this is what I love. Like the bad guy is so often like, I'm going to get you. I'm the big tough bad guy. And here's this guy who's like tears. Like, I'm going to take Cherry Lawler. And I'm going to get him. And he's like punching this chair. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna get him. And he starts like, headbutting the chair. Fucking hell. You can see like the likes of Sandman watching that yeah. going, ah, all right, I like <laughs> this here. And then he says that this is horse country. And he's going to show everyone that he's the biggest stud around. <laughs> but he doesn't say it like that. He says it in the scariest way possible. When you've got Terry Funk with a fucking eye patch, good. I'm the biggest stud around. <laughs> Screaming to himself. He's going to take Jerry Lawler out of wrestling. But not for a short time. But a long time. Oh, fuck me. And again, garbage quality. Yeah. If that was released in high quality, I think that a whole new generation of wrestling fans are going to be like, what the fuck was going on in Memphis in the 80s? <laughs> Sweet Enola Gay, like. So, Terry was still very much the, the journeyman at this point. He would wrestle a few big matches or do a few big tours in Japan, do a little kind of bit of business somewhere, then he'd take a couple of months off and he'd go be back at the old, uh, the old Double Cross Ranch. The Double Cross Ranch, just in case you're, you're unaware, that's Terry Funk's, like, kayfabe like name that he always he'd be from the double cross ranch terry funk but it was also a legitimate ranch that he owned and kept horses at for for many many years oh wow 
Uh, the original name of the Double Cross Ranch comes from... Remember I told you that his dad wrestled in Canada as a bad guy? Mm-hmm. Well, he was meant to be like the outlaw, this like evil Texan. So he was from the Double Cross Ranch, implying that he was going to double, double cross, cross you because right. he was a bad guy. That's where the name comes from. But because Terry's a God-fearing Christian, what he tells everyone in the community in Amarillo is just, oh no, it's a Double Cross because it's two crucifixes because of how <laughs> holy and pious we are. Like, as opposed to, I like the yeah. idea that two crucifixes are somehow much more holy than one. Yeah, because the, the most Christian thing in the world is crucifying Jesus and then doing it again. Yeah, like. two torture devices instead of the one torture device. Uh, Terry, I might I say, how very Catholic of you. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll send you on my information. We can talk. Like, uh, right, I just wanted to maybe... Have a little sidebar. We've talked about a one-eyed man beating a chair to death and all sorts of horror. So maybe let's dial it back and get into a little bit more uh, of the the weird side of Terry's traveling world. Uh, I like now that you are finding out more about these individual characters and set pieces in wrestling, which means that we can find little uh, connections there. A great connection that we've obviously recently made is with Brett, all about Stu Hart and Calgary and Stampede Wrestling, where Terry Funk did find himself for a brief period of time. Said that he likes Stu a lot, but uh, Joe's got a wee little extract from Terry's book regarding Stu Hart's culinary skills. Oh man, this story is ridiculous. It's got cats and cooking in it. What more can you? Those are two of your favorite things. Like, come yeah. on, right? Okay. Another time, Stu had some of the wrestlers over for dinner, and he had a grand meal prepared: roast beef, salad, and the works. He asked us in his unique growl. A.A. Who A.A. wants A.A. salad? (laughs) Several of us asked for salad and he turned to the large bowl where Bo, the Hart family cat, was laying all over the salad. The big salad bowl was normally one of Bo's beds, apparently, and I guess he decided that they had made a bed of lettuce for him to lay down on. Stu shooed the cat away. Hey, get the hell out, eh? Out of there, eh, you damn cat, eh? (laughs) Both scooted on out of the salad bowl and then Stu grabbed the tongs and put the batch of salad into smaller bowls. Hey, okay now, hey, who said they wanted salad? Oh. That's disgusting. There's a cat in the salad. Oh, Harry. It's like some sort of like evil nursery rhyme. Like, if you're not good, there'll be a cat in your salad next uh. night you eat. Uh. Also, I feel I have to mention all those A's. That wasn't me. That's that's Terry Funk doing an impression of, of Stu Hart. Yeah. Um, I'm not just being really mean to Canadians. I don't know if that's meant to be necessarily Canadian A or more of a Stu Hart. <laughs> You know? Oh, is it? Because <laughs> when you think if you read it with eh, eh, ooh, eh, eh, want, eh, eh, salad, it uh, sounds less hateful to Canadians and more just true. like, oh, it's just that's how Stu Hart speaks. <laughs> the phonetics there. Right, we're going to uh, move on a little bit now and talk about how Terry helped bring. I mean, what he was doing there in Memphis, that's obviously very, like, you know, ahead of its time. We're talking, you know, empty arena matches, we're talking hardcore stuff, we're talking. The types of wild brawls are more associated with the late 90s. We're going to talk now more about Terry bringing that to a more national stage. And Terry Funk found himself in WCW in the late 80s, feuding with the nature boy Ric Flair. And at this point in time, Terry was considered to be a very old veteran. And uh, he actually had been through a couple of retirements at this point. Was he older than Rick? Uh, he's older than Rick, yeah. Wow. Older than Rick by maybe around, I'd say maybe... Five years max, maybe three or five years. God, you would not think that to look at them both side by side now. Yeah, I know. And 
I, this is a kind of a pairing that I'm always amazed by. Like Terry Funk and Ric Flair, two more different wrestlers you could yeah. not come across. So our next match is obviously coming from your recommendations because people were all over us to review Ric Flair versus Terry Funk from the Clash of Champions in 1989. This is the I Quit match, one of the first ever seen on a national stage in America. And many cite this as being the best match of all time. And a lot of people in the old tweets said that it was their favourite match of all time. How are we doing another I Quit match on this podcast? I don't know. They seem to follow me around. Uh, how's your experience been like with I Quit matches so far, Joe? Not Jill? great. Uh, let's, let's have a little history lesson then. What was your, your first, first I Quit match? First was John Cena versus The Miz. And, and uh, don't forget A-Rye, Alex Riley. Oh, God, well. how can I forget Alex Riley? God. That was not the I Quit match. That was the I Quit match. <laughs> uh, not a particularly hot start. And uh, we had a more recent I Quit match on the podcast, if you recall. Oh, what was the more recent one? Remind me. It was from our Mick Foley episode. I still don't remember. Mankind versus The Rock. Oh, the... no! Wow. I don't remember. It's a horrible match. Ah, that's in the repressed memories folder <laughs> in your brain basement. <laughs> that's the one where The Rock hits Mick Foley over the head like 12 times with a chair, like totally unprotected and totally unnecessary in front of his children. Yeah. That's kind of the point where like the crowd were like just almost bored into silence by just, not sorry, bored is the wrong word, but like they had been made very numb, I yeah. think, by all of that. So when you heard an I Quit match was on the docket... Excited? No. Dreading it? Not dreading it, but not excited either. I feel the premise of an I Quit match is stupid. Why Why is it stupid? Because I think it's it takes the pacing away from the match if you have a referee constantly having to follow around the competitors with a microphone, mm. switching between the two of them depending on who's on the offensive and who's on the defensive. Like Every time someone gets attacked, they're there with the microphone going, do you quit? Do you quit? Do you like hearing heavy breathing? Then these matches are for you. Heavy breathing followed by, no. Like, to me, an I quit match shouldn't have microphones. It should be the person screaming, I quit, when they quit. You should be able to hear it from the audience without a microphone. You know what? Lord knows you could do that because Lord knows the, the mics on some of the rings yeah, are loud enough. enough. Now, you yeah. could hear it. I mean, it was actually very interesting. One thing about Terry going between all the different companies that we did, because we got some stuff from Memphis and ECW where it's like springy, bouncy castle almost. Very loud, very springy, bouncy ring. And then like a WCW and then we're going to do some stuff in Japan. It's like this rock hard yeah. fucking canvas where they just even make a thud when they hit on it. It's so hard. So yeah, I think they could do that. I mean, I think by your token, I don't think I could ever show you an I Quit match necessarily that you would like because I don't know if any I Quit match has not got those things that you've mentioned. Yeah. The ref following around, the kind of awkwardness and all that. But I like to think that in its essence, though, it's a really strong idea because a wrestler having to say that he just gives up, that's like, that's really strong in yeah, itself. Yeah, I really right? like that, but they never say it. It's always like muttered, like, I quit. I, I feel like all the I quit matches I've watched, every time they finally say I quit, it's never like a dramatic moment. It's like really anticlimactic. It's kind of like, a oh, finally. You know, it's technically an I quit match that we've done for this podcast. Mm. It's the submission match between Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin. You're the one where Austin's face gets covered in oh, blood yeah. and he passes out. That was technically meant to be an I quit match, but Austin passed out yeah. instead of saying it. It's actually funny to think that Probably the most impressive I Quit match doesn't even use the phrase I Quit no. in it. Like So yeah, 
maybe they need to go to the drawing board this one but i was very i had very high hopes i'd seen this one before and i love it a lot and rick flair speaks incredibly highly of this match he said this is one of his all-time faves this is terry funk from the late 80s so he's already retired i think twice at this point forever forever i mean did you hear much noise from people about Terry Funk retiring lots and things like yes, that? Yes, I believe it was Michael Scally who compared him to Hayao Miyazaki, who is the uh, creator of Studio Ghibli, who also retires like every couple of years and has done for about 15 years. Now, like, a wrestler retiring and then coming back out of retirement... You've probably seen it like when we had Shawn Michaels come back for his, you know, he wanted some blood money recently and he came back out of retirement and all that. And obviously Mick Foley's episode, we saw someone come out of retirement quite a lot. Mm. Uh, you know, you've had a few years of watching wrestling now. Is it something that you think would upset you to see a wrestler coming out of retirement? Because it's something that seems to upset wrestling fans a lot generally. Really? Yeah. I think it depends on the why they're returning. Okay. Because there's returning out of necessity, which is what Mick Foley did a couple of times, where he he genuinely needed the money, Mm. and so he had to come back. And that's really sad, I think, when that happens. People look down on that type of retirement the worst. like As if a wrestler dared try and make a bit of money. See, I don't look down on it. I just feel like, if you've retired, that's a really serious decision. You don't take that lightly. You don't just retire because you kind of feel like it one mm. day and it's a bit of a frivolous decision. You know, you, there's probably reasons why you've retired. You either want to spend more time with family or you're in too much pain that you can't continue. Mm. And then for someone to then come out of retirement just because they have to have, you know, they need the money, mm. that's really sad because, you know, it means you're putting yourself under a lot of pain for, you know, just to keep surviving. It's difficult though, isn't it? With that estimation because... Every wrestler who's come out of retirement, in some respect, it has been for the money, I guess. There's a difference, though, between genuinely needing the money and not needing the money. I think if you want to come out of retirement because you fancy a big paycheck, that's fine. Mm. It's, it's sad to me, and I don't look down on it, but I just I just feel it's sad when wrestlers, you know, they're in dire straits and they just, they've run out of money. Right, yeah, and they're kind and of they, caught in a trap almost. They have to, yeah. They're, they're not, you know, maybe they're not qualified or trained in anything else and it's the only thing that they ha- can rely on that will bring them back some cash. Mm. And that's really sad then. No, you're, you're totally right. I think you've, you've actually managed to, 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 to hit on a point that I think bypasses most wrestling fans, myself included, which is, I think the circumstances of wrestlers retiring and coming out Oftentimes, it's less to do with the wrestlers themselves and more to probably do with the setup of this industry. Mm. And if there were things like a union or retirement plans or support or whatnot, I mean, it's not there, is it? And that's no. probably why many wrestlers find themselves in that position where they just have to come out and, and wrestle and retire. It's not yeah. because it's not because they've made a necessary decision. I think maybe it's that a collection of decisions and the backdrop of this fucked up not really fair working environment yeah. like Sandman for example he retired and then came back out of retirement to wrestle more wrestle more wrestle he more. said <laughs> I mean I had all those beers and cigarettes they weren't going to smoke themselves <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's a bad example I'm sure there's better examples but like my point is is that Sandman he owns successful businesses mm. he's got money outside of wrestling he didn't need to come doing back it for the love of it, he's like. doing it for the love of mm. it and, and because it's good money not just because he has to and he's got no other options I mean I tried to find out the number of times that Terry Funk is retired and it was very very difficult really like someone had once joked that I think Foley in one of his books was like Terry Funk is the only man to have a retirement match in every continent <laughs> and then I was like oh wait hang 
on. I started Googling. I, I stopped it once we got to Australasia. I wasn't able to find any there. But Terry has retired a lot. And by this match we're going to recover next, he'd already retired twice. Once in All Japan in 1983. Forever! For that, I mean, that's really hard with the tears, the blood, Aww. and the eyes. He had no intention of retiring. He just thought he was leaving Japan. That was it. Like right. He thought, well, I'm not coming back to Japan. I'm retired in Japan. And he was back in Japan uh, to retire again in 1987. Again, from All Japan Pro Wrestling. So, like, every time he's come back, it's just been because he's like, he needed money. But I think a lot of his retirements were misconstrued. Like, he had a retirement match, in inverted commas, in 1997 against Bret Hart. And he was back wrestling three months later. But in his book, he's like, I never said I was retiring. I just said I was retiring in Amarillo. I wasn't going to wrestle in Amarillo again. And I thought if I said it was a retirement match, we might get a good payday for the local wrestlers and, you know, make a bit of money for everyone. Right. So Terry has almost used his retirement in his defense as like a marketing strategy to help out smaller companies. Because if you look at the places where he has retired... TWA, IZW, BTW, he's retired in House of Heart. Like, a lot of times it's in smaller indie promotions where he's announcing retirements. Wow. And I think it's just to move some tickets. <laughs> I kind of like that. <laughs> I mean, and you know, he's he said in like 2016, you know, that's it. Now I'm definitely done. <laughs> 2017, he wrestled a, a six-man tag. And that was the most recent time he's wrestled. So he has said since that he is also definitely retired. But I think the reality is, is if you think that Terry Funk is one of these people like Mick Foley who's been agonizing or like Mick Foley definitely agonized about it. Mm. And we talked about in his documentary that he was like, I should have called it quits. I regret coming back. Yeah. That I kind of tarnished the old legacy there. Terry Funk's like, uh-uh, I didn't tarnish my legacy. I just varnished my new porch. I thought, you know, <laughs> it's, it's grand. Like, you know, I want to make more money. And I think when you're not locked into a contract in any one place like Terry never really was, you can kind of get away with it. Yeah. I think that he has. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly different than people who've retired from WWE several times. Mm. That's a very different than when you've got the, the whole show reel and you've got several retirements Your on there. memory is long and you want them to go. I mean, it, I say this now, but like, you know, where we are at the moment, this is just gone into October 2019. There is rumours of Edge, who's a wrestler who's been... God, it seems to be 10 years he's been retired now because of neck injury. He's rumoured to maybe be wanting to make a return. Steve Austin, who's in his 50s now, he said the other day in an interview, yeah, I could do another match. What? And this is the thing about when you try to have a serious conversation about wrestling retirements. It's all well and good making your moral points until it comes up to a wrestler that you really, really want to see come back. And I think any argument I can make one way or the other will go out the door. Like, ah, Steve Austin wrestling again. I'd be a wrestling fan then. But, like, he would have to be cleared to wrestle, right? He reckons he could be. Yeah. But, yeah. And it's not like he needs the money. He is doing very well for himself. So it would be out of love because he wants to do it. And to be honest, I, I see no problem. If you've taken a long hiatus from wrestling, you've rested your body, you've had a chance to connect with family, maybe take up some hobbies and interests mm-hmm. that you didn't have time to do when you were a wrestler. You've developed a broken skull challenge. <laughs> you know, you burnt the previous skull buster to the ground. You've made an even more bust-ass one for season five. <laughs> you know? it's, just, it's interesting because I think Terry Funk, by the late 70s, early 80s, he had figured out this off-season that wrestling has been talking about mm. you know, and is never going to do. And then when AEW was starting up, the new wrestling company, there was r- rumours they might have this you know, off-season like the NFL or a lot of sports organisations have where there's a chance for everyone to recoup and 
bit of downtime, get off the road, and that's not happening. But mm. Terry was doing that, you oh, know. That's really cool. Yeah. I'd say good for him. Yeah. I mean, everyone's going to, oh, you're, you know, you got, the reason he's probably able to wrestle for as long as he has wrestled is because he's took like nine months of the year off during most of his active career. So, yeah, yeah pretty smart stuff. So, from one master of the fake retirement to another, Ric Flair versus Terry Funk at the Clash of Champions. I said these two men are very, very different, Joe. So, I was wondering if you'd help folks out with the, with the story for this one because we watched some of the segments leading up to this big clash. Yeah, we sure did. So, Terry Funk is retired for the third time. <laughs> and he's a judge for this championship match. And they'd basically sometimes, back in the day in uh, WCW... They'd have judges watch certain matches between champions to, just in case it came to a draw and they needed then other people to determine who's the winner. Do you like the idea of there being like a scorecarding I thing? I love the idea of there Me being Me too. Judges. Yeah, it seems so fun. I think especially if you'd got like, if it would be a bit like Britain's Got Talent or something <laughs> where you have like two industry experts, mm. like wrestlers or managers or stuff like that, and then one celebrity guest who's just oh, a fan of wrestling. yes. How fun would that be? God, you know, they, you know, the only place they've tried to do that is on fucking Tough Enough. And no. when TNA did their version of Tough Enough, no. the gotcha. This though, where you've got Terry Funk being like, I'm a judge. Yeah. Now give me a match. Whoa. It's so <laughs> cool. So yeah, he's this judge. And then Ric Flair has a match in which Terry votes him the winner. Terry asks Rick why Rick wouldn't fight Terry. He's like, why, why wouldn't you fight me? And then Rick is like, oh, I thought you were tired, old man. <gasps> you said the, the words. Yeah. <laughs> Terry goes mad and he attacks Ric Flair and puts him through a table. For the first, well, doesn't really put him through a table. Yeah, this is a first. It is a first. Kind of. First ever table used in wrestling. Uh, an American wrestling for definite anyway. Sorry, yeah. yeah. They don't really go through the table. They go onto the table and then... What does he What does he do to Rick? So Terry tries to pile drive Rick into the table, but it doesn't really work. And everyone falls over and the table falls onto them. You were very quick to point out Ric Flair's unique cell of the pile driver. Yes, it, it was more of a handstand. It's very scary when you think that what basically Rick did was do a handstand and then just drop on his head onto yeah. a solid table. I can't even imagine doing... Like, handstands are scary enough. When I think of doing handstands, I just think of falling over. I have tried to do handstands and headstands in the past. I cannot Fuck do me. them. No way I could ever do that. I'm lower heavy. So I'm just not designed that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. But Ric Flair, he's it's all on the shoulders, you know, his weight. And he does a really impressive handstand. And the fact that he does it on a wobbly table is yeah. genuinely so impressive. And also as well, bonus points for Terry Funk managing to negotiate a pile driver on a table while wearing a baggy tuxedo. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had another bit of a segment we watched before this. This one was so spicy that it got taken off TV and they got in a lot of trouble for it. And I told Joe before he watched it, it's like, this makes reference to a problematic video game that you like. Yeah. And it was a long time guessing what it was actually going to be. Terry brings out this plastic bag. Oh, no. And puts it on Rick's head. And then starts taping it up. I, that's the, I remember he did the plastic bag. I didn't remember the tape. I had blotted that from my it's memory. so dangerous. Because Rick has just wrestled a big match. So he's like breathing really heavily and fast. And you were able to point out you could see Rick's blood through the white <sighs> trash bag. Was Terry going too far there? I mean, it's very effective. 
I don't I don't know how dangerous it is to do a segment like that because after they did this they were told you went too far mm. weren't they yeah like, absolutely never do that again I think even just like even if you could say this is two super professional guys who totally know what they're doing you know and they managed to do it safely or whatever I think it's just the fact that it's like <laughs> a plastic like if one kid saw that that's the like, thing you know, and that's I, and a I, scary thing I yeah. speak this as a kid who gave and took many stone cold stunners tombstone pile drivers and otherwise and yikes I just I don't say I would have taken a bag out but I mean I, I know what it's like to be an impressionable young kid yeah and Terry Funk certainly leaves an impression let's just say oh it's so scary to think of yeah that, that's that's the really frightening frightening thing about that uh, the promo I showed you where he called Jerry Lawler a baby banger though over and over and over again I'm not sure if that was crossing the line or not that's why more shades of grey is it <laughs> I feel it's a really complicated issue here because like on the one hand I feel yes absolutely you know wrestlers should call out Jerry Lawler for what he did as an alleged paedophile but to do it as a heel yeah makes it seem as though what Jerry did was actually okay yeah, because like Terry like is like has a little side in the book. He has this like big chunk where he's this big promo where he's calling Jerry Lawler a baby banger over and over again. And he's like, now you have to understand, Jerry had had some legal troubles in the mid nineties here in Memphis, so I knew that that would elicit a reaction from the fans because he had been acquitted of those charges, and I knew it would make his fans very upset for me to bring it up. And I was like, okay, I mean, he's got some, he's got some like viewpoints I definitely don't agree with in terms of what's cool and what's okay to use for sure and what's not there's a lot of times when you're reading his book where like, there were bits in there where he said something a, like a bit racist and uh, terry using the phrase i'm queer for wrestling yeah. was a bit of an awkward one <laughs> yeah he puts his foot in it a lot as I, I mean i guess that kind of feeds into more of this like you know old uncle type character where he kind of he he's a bit clumsy in what he's trying to say he, he the heart's in the well. right place yeah because yeah. did i tell you the one about like the the black wrestlers they booked in amarillo and what they did no like he said like he had in amarillo they had black baby faces which was like quite a rare thing at the time because they had a they had a mixed uh, crowd it was a mostly a mixture of white and latina people who would be there but, you know, it was still something that never happened to have like a, a black baby face. And he thought, well, the way you get a black baby face over is that you have racist white wrestler characters so that the white people of the audience can go, well, hang on, what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. And I don't want to be like that guy. So, yeah, boo. And he was basically saying to educate the people that it was okay to cheer for black athletes and mm -hmm. that we were moving forward that he thought it was necessary to have these characters that had this racist tint to them or invoking kind of the good old boys mentality of, of days gone past. Which I, I see where he's I coming from. I get where he's from, coming from, but, but... I don't agree. I, I, I want to watch a wrestling show knowing that there's going to be a white supremacist character in no, from back in the also, day. How fucking boring for the poor black baby faces who maybe just want to have a proper storyline that doesn't involve racism angles. Well he'd make the point that they wouldn't have had a storyline before. This is the first time they would have been getting like main mm. event babyface storylines which I mean I think it's like almost inevitable it's going to go that way like if it's going to be a slow try to change the way the audience thinks but I think what seems to be like a good idea in the 60s and the 70s you yeah. can see how when you look back it's just not going to age well no. even if the heart's in the right place like you wouldn't 
begrudge anyone looking at it and kind of go, that's in poor taste or whatever. But, you know, I think Terry just has some quite old-fashioned beliefs, I think, about what's fair game and what should be used. Like, he goes on at length about why he thought it was good when he was a, a, a gaijin or a white wrestler in Japan to, to rile up the crowds and, and to bring up the horrible history between America and Japan because he felt that the, the Japanese people needed that release. They needed to see Japanese heroes beat the American foreigners who are coming in and being bad guys. And again, I mean, that's that's obviously from a different tilt where you're mm-hmm. flipping the rolls a bit. But I see where he's coming from. I don't know if I could say hand and heart. I'd want to watch a lot of that stuff. No, I completely agree. <laughs> you know, I think it is a matter for history and it can remain there as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Anyway, on to the match. We've got two very big names in here who are clashing at the champions in an I Quit match, what were your thoughts on the entrances of these two men? Terry Funk's entrance is amazing. So first of all, Terry, he's he's grown up now. Mm-hmm. He's got his long hair. He's got his goatee. Which, by the way, I think Terry Funk is one of only two people in the entire world who suits a goatee. Who's the other person on the list? Steve Austin. Oh, yeah, true. Although, I know mean, you, were, you were taken aback by stunning Steve Austin when he was yeah. a handsome man, yeah. He suits without the goatee as well. Interesting. Who, who, <laughs> how about Goldberg? Can he pull off the goatee? I guess he kind of pulls off. Meh. The full beard's better, though, isn't it? It yeah. is better, yeah. Mm. Interesting. Why Why is the goatee so difficult to pull off and why can Terry do it? I don't know. I don't know how he does it, but he, <laughs> he manages it somehow. It's one of the mysteries. Yeah. So uh, Jerry Lawler and Michael Cole, not on that list. No. Uh, not with their special goatees. So you like Terry's look here, a little bit more grown up? Yeah, a bit more grown up. Fucking uh, six pack on him. He has got a six pack, yeah. I asked you what his workout routine was because he looks amazing. And you were like, oh yeah, he did like a thousand sit-ups every day. Yeah. And then no one noticed that he had a six-pack and he was like, why the fuck am I bothering doing a thousand sit-ups a day? Which is a mood. Yeah, seriously. What's the point? He was like, he ha- he is so jacked here. Yeah. You know, unbelievably so. He's got this six-pack that is just like, I don't say it seems weird that's on Terry Funk because obviously he had it, but like... But it is weird because he's like got this face of an old man, but he's like totally ripped. He looks like a modern wrestler, like from today. So many of the guys today have these six packs and everything. And I think it's just like, it's normalized at this point. Yeah, that's true. Whereas like, it's very unusual to see wrestlers with six packs in like the 80s and the 90s. I mean, he almost looks in better condition than Ric Flair. And that's saying He does, something. yeah. I mean, Rick is ripped in his own way. But yeah, it's, it's genuinely really impressive. But the best thing about this isn't his six pack. It's the fact that he comes out to this amazing Sergei Leone entrance music. This fucking beautiful cowboy mood. Yeah. Oh my God. Accompanied with cowboys. <laughs> and not like crazy over the top cowboys. Literal like ranch hands with a little yeah. bandana, check shirt, hand in the top belt loop. Any other era of wrestling would have had sexy cowgirls. Yeah. And I'm so glad they went for sexy cowboys instead. Fucking brilliant. So good. You weren't a fan of the manager Gary Hart being there no, though. No, what's the point of the man in the suit? He ruined the aesthetic. You at least put on a hat, Gary. Like. Yeah, come on, Gary. Gary Hart, no relation to the hearts or Jimmy Hart. He's just one of the many hearts in wrestling who's not a heart. Yeah, okay, that's but not confusing. Not one of the people in wrestling who has no heart. Those are different wrestlers. Right. We'll talk about them another time. Rick's entrance by comparison then. Oh my god, it's 
also amazing. Rick has entrance music for his entrance music. Amazing. It starts off as fanfare for the common man. Which is... Terry used for a bit himself. Really, mm. it's great music. I was going to say, as anyone used that as their entrance music? Because holy shit, it's so good. It's like the big drums and then you just have the one solitary horn going da, da, da. it just sounds so fucking triumphant yeah. but a little sad definitely a bit sad I was thinking that this would be great music for like a wrestler who's retired and then come out of retirement yeah we had a big chat about this like what wrestlers we would like to see come out to fanfare to the common man and I said like because we're thinking about like you know wrestlers who already have retired like who would come back I was thinking Macho Man if he was still alive would mm. be good for that music but if we were talking about current wrestlers like Samoa Joe maybe because mm. it's quite like regal music that's true I mean it's difficult to find someone who you'd want to return at an older age but isn't so associated with their entrance music that yeah. it would be disappointing if you didn't hear it it would be best for someone whose entrance music wouldn't work for them as an old man so my, I, my first choice was like I was like big show no because <laughs> he's so grand and big no. he is, and if he was old as well no because it's got to be someone who when you see them as an old person you're like it kind of makes you feel like feel something because you're like oh my god you know i remember when they're in their prime mm -hmm. so many good memories they're such a hero so i submit to you listening audience picture this wrestlemania 53 where john cena comes out da, 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 slowly walks onto the ramp a little bit of grey in the hair. The, the crow's feet looks into the camera. Does that one last salute. <gasps> and he can't run down the aisle anymore. No! You're going to make me cry. <laughs> too sad. I love it. I have to see it now. I have to wait 50 years for John Cena to come out of retirement to this music. I'm glad you like this music a lot because Terry's other entrance music, you know, obviously the Sergi Leone style stuff here was great, but I mentioned that he used to come out to Desperado and ECW and you were like, the <laughs> no. Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> it's way too sad, Desperado. Yeah. It doesn't work. So Rick's got the entrance for his entrance with, uh, <laughs> with uh, Fanfare for the Common Man, which... Which is very much a piece of music that's like astronauts about to go into space. Yes, definitely. And then we've got Space Odyssey, which is very much astronauts in space. <laughs> and he comes out with all these beautiful, shiny women who are all very glittery. One of them's got a fun hat. Yes, one of them has a fun hat. I kind of wish that he would like come out with one singular cowboy in reverse to Terry Funk's entrance where he's got one guy in a suit. That'd be really funny. Two cowboys versus four babes. Terry's yeah. outnumbered. He is outnumbered, yeah. Rick would win in a fight, I guess, because of the bit, the, the glitter babes. So, seeing Terry here now, and this is kind of getting a chance to see Terry in higher quality, get to see him in, in living colour, we're not like having any kind of warped VHS effects and all that. What did you think of Terry's kind of like, his movements, I guess I want to say, because not just his selling, but the way that he kind of handles himself when lurches he lurches around. It's different, right? Yeah, he kind of he sways and lurches and kind of I don't know how you describe stumbles. Kind of, yes. Yeah, We're making it like he's uncoordinated. But no, it's a deliberate stumbling. It is one of the most, like I don't know, captivating things. We see Terry Funk get hit and he kind of like he the, the feet are like you, you look at his feet the footwork yeah and not since macho man trying to appear two inches taller which seems <laughs> delicate footwork but the way he stumbles around to make it look like he's about to keel over and collapse but he's in perfect control of his balance mm -hmm. given the bad knees yeah like, one of the first things he does in this match is he goes out to take a swipe at the fans and like 
pretends to fall over the barricade and like is swinging around. It's like he's got no equilibrium. Mm. And it makes for a very interesting wrestling contest. Yeah, it seems very unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, you don't know if he's going to hit you or fall over and hit you in the process of falling over. <laughs> he referred to Ric Flair many times in the lead up to this and there were many signs in the crowd that responded to this. It's an egg-sucking dog. Yeah, that's my top spot. <laughs> Why is it a top spot? Because dogs don't suck eggs. <laughs> eggs. In fact, with golden retrievers, if you put a, an egg in their mouth... Oh, shut up. Is this true? What? This is true. This is true. If you put an egg in their mouth, they'll just gently hold on to it. And they'll keep it there. Wait, does it have to be a boiled egg? or No, no. A raw... A raw egg. Egg. They won't crack it in their mouth. They've got such gentle mouths. Wow. You can put it between their teeth and they'll just go... Oh. But you shouldn't do it because I, when I tried to find a video of this for Kevin, it came up with like, because this was a meme about a year ago of people yeah, putting eggs, eggs in their dog's mouth. It's dangerous for the dogs. So listeners at home, if you've just heard of this for the first time, don't try it. It's dangerous for the dogs. Yeah. Okay. You don't want your dog to become an egg sucking dog because then it'll be like Dusty Rhodes or Ric Flair and you don't <laughs> want that. I, I, I was always drawn to the Dusty Sucks Eggs t-shirt. Something about saying that someone sucks eggs. Yeah is very, very insulting somehow. I want that t-shirt so bad. The design of it is, I think it's the most beautiful wrestling t-shirt ever. <laughs> it's fucking great. I mean, I love that he loved, I like that he called him an egg-sucking dog a lot, but uh, the main the main criticism that he had for Ric Flair was that he was a banana nose. Oh, that sounds kind of offensive. A banana nose. The Also, the thing he called him was a jackass. He called him that a lot. Yeah. I showed you the great promo where Terry Funk had a beautiful dream where he was sitting on the porch of the Double Cross Ranch with his father and a young woman came up and we thought that she had run over a jackass but it smelled of cheap perfume and cologne and it wasn't a jackass, it was Ric Flair! <laughs> now, the I quit factor comes in here quite quickly. Yeah. I did like where he's about to pile drive Rick and he's like, remember your neck, Rick. I'm gonna pile drive you, do you quit? And that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was another pile driver outside. I uh, like particularly that Terry tiptoed off the carpet so he could do it on the hard fucking floor. Oh, I didn't notice that. Very good. Like, there's a wildness to this match that seems kind of like unscripted that I love. Like, when Terry's, th like, he gets thrown at one point, he like slides across mm. the table, hits his head into a chair. It's like a choreographed movie or something, even though they're just swinging for the fences. What did you think of the chops in this one? The chops were pretty nasty. I think if you're... Am I right to think that if you put on more muscle, the chops are going to be worse? I don't know. Like if you're more solid, you have less, like, protection? I don't know. I, I don't know which means you'd have more nerve endings, or does it not mean that at all? I, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I just don't want to be chopped full stop. No, like, it sounds you know, horrible. Absolutely horrible. I know there's a thing a lot of wrestling fans do, which when they meet wrestlers, they're like, yeah, chop me. Don't understand. That's our Japanese fan thing as well. Really? Huge, yeah, where they want wrestlers to chop them. I'll just say that the one time I took a wrestling move for a for a show thing when I did the fight like apes wrestling show thing, Jesus, over ten years ago now, and I took shin kicks. Uh, like he was issues, but the guy had like the kick pads on and all that, and, you know, full kick pads and all that. And he's like, "Look, I'll give. Uh, what were we gonna do? Like, what move to get me off?" And we thought it'd be funny because he was shorter than me. If you just kicked me at the leg, and I was like, "Ah!" and I ran off like a coward. But he only gave me like three of them, but the kicks were so intense that it literally matted my suit pants into my hair and caused like this abrasion that started bleeding then. Oh so, my god. Uh, the only move in wrestling I've ever taken, I bled because of it. And afterwards I was like, 
well, you made me bleed there with your kicks, pal. And they're like, ha, 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 like it was a joke. And I was like, no, seriously, I was... Oh, my God. they're like, how did this happen? Fragile skin. Yeah, so working in a tuxedo, folks, it's dangerous business. Yeah. Don't do it unless you're Terry Funk. There is nothing that screams old-timey 80s wrestling like young, passionate Jim Ross going, I think he's going to do it. The fan thinks he's going to do it. Yes, Ric Flair, he's going to start working the leg. And then he hits him in the leg and the crowd go, yeah, <laughs> work the leg, work the leg. <laughs> wow, what a simpler time. Yeah, if only we got that nowadays. Now, I couldn't help but notice when you were watching this one that it maybe didn't uh, click with you a whole ton. Was there things about this match that you didn't like? I I found it a bit just I don't want to say boring. It seems unfair, but it just there wasn't anything magical to it that made me kind of I don't know, like fondly think of it in any way. Is this just compared to the other Terry Funk matches that we watched? Yeah, maybe. Because obviously there's other ones that we watch other than the ones that we're discussing here in detail. We've been putting stuff up, obviously recommended bonus viewing, howtowrestling.com, check that out for all previous episodes and all, all episodes obviously. But was it that it wasn't like hardcore enough or was there not enough variation of moves? Because I would say watching this, you know, with 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 kind of more of a critical eye this time, it certainly fell into the Ric Flair trap of he did a lot of chops. Yeah. And there wasn't a whole lot. I mean, this is the Bret Hart criticism of like you were just doing chops and not a whole lot yeah. else. I, and I don't really like chops anyway. I find chops are kind of a boring move. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of pile drivers as well. There was a lot of pile drivers. I guess, yeah, it was just a bit samey so you didn't you didn't view it as being this no way knockout drag out mm. classic brawl like no I only gave it two and a half stars really yeah so like I mean my favourite part for the match is definitely going to be the finish where he works the leg and then like he has Funk finally in the figure four leg lock and Funk is like no never I'll never quit I'll never oh my leg is breaking this son of a bitch is gonna break my leg I quit and like I love they have this like real aggressive Rick's like straight away no you said you'd shake my hand woo and like they're aggressively shaking each other's hand like the emotion of it at the end I, I thought that was really like genuine and that was quite like that was quite special. Mm. So two and a half stars for you. Mm-hmm. What would you say to folks who think this is the best match of all time? I wouldn't have anything to say. I mean, it's your opinion. You're welcome to that. <laughs> I disagree with it. But then I, I often disagree with what people consider to be the best matches of all time. I often don't think that they're that good. A lot of the classic matches don't hold up on this podcast. And I'm not saying that's <laughs> not because they're not good. I'm just saying no. that I think there's a number of things that you have to take like from a historical perspective and... Seven, you know, this is one of these things that it kind of feels like someone could come and tell you why this is a great match because of historical context and significance and things like that. And that's meant to kind of amplify the match beyond just your viewing of it. But I I mean, I know it happened a little bit with Ricky Steamboat and Macho Man as well, mm. where, you know, it was a match that was so hyped up, I felt it was impossible. I think wrestling often does this with its special matches yeah. where they're very, very difficult to live up to that hype. I think Hell in the Cell is maybe one that does live up to that hype where it is still the damnedest thing, even if mm-hmm. you saw it to this day. But yeah, I think a lot of these older ones do struggle a little bit. Yeah. And that's okay. I mean, you know, it's it's not for everyone, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I like what I like. 
happens yeah. to be I'm not that big a fan of chops. I know I'm in the minority there. Most wrestling fans fucking love chops. There's a lot of them here. If There's you like lot, chops yeah. and you like Terry Funk's fucking Kramer ass selling of like stumbling around and bumping about, then it's it's a match for you. And the crowd are nuclear hot. And Jim Ross in commentary, I should point out, is exceptional in this match. Yeah, he's very good. That young passion Jim Ross. Yeah. Where did you go? Like <laughs> <laughs> So, we're going to move on now into a little bit more of the hardcore, a little bit more extreme. We saw some stuff from ECW and Terry Funk in our ECW episode a little bit in the documentary. I showed Joe a match between Sabu and Terry Funk. This isn't our main match we're going through. I thought I'd show Joe from Born to be Wired, the (laughs) incredibly dangerous barbed wire match between Terry and Sabu. What were your thoughts on that one, just as a matter of interest? I kind of enjoyed it. It was interesting to see how you wrestle a match with barbed wire as the ropes. Yeah. Because there was a lot of like, I thought they'd be a bit more careful about not going into the barbed wire. And instead it's just like, just throwing themselves right into it straight the, the away. The Sabu episode that comes will will make a lot more sense of this, right. I think. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, did it make you squeamish? Was it too much? No, I thought it was okay, actually. Considering there was blood... I, I've realised this about myself. I don't like blading, but I don't mind if blood happens organically. Really? Yeah. Terry Funk and Sabu getting caught in a big bale of barbed wire that's all yeah. around their throats and stuff and referees are there Didn't with make me wire cutters. Now, me, I'm completely the opposite. Yeah, I mean, that makes more sense to me. It's illogical to me how I react to these things because I know... Blading is actually quite safe. Mm. You know, it's a controlled... For the most part, yeah. Yeah, it's a controlled act that they're doing to themselves. So it's not like it's, you know, accidentally happened to them and they've not consented to it. You're choosing to harm yourself in a, with hopefully a clean, sterile razor blade. You would yeah. really hope that. And the doctor's there and everyone's been tested. Yeah, exactly. They know it's going to happen, so everyone's prepared no for it. No secret hepatitis. Hopefully, yeah. So I know in theory it's, it's a lot safer to do blading than it is to do the... What do you call it? Hard way? Hard way. Hard way, yeah. yeah. But there's something to me that I find deeply repulsive about someone harming themselves with it's a razor blade. It's so interesting to me, that, because... It just makes me feel very squeamish. Yeah, I mean... Why would you... Oh, just the... Oh, slicing your head open for entertainment. It's just... I did something about that I just cannot handle. <laughs> Obviously, it's a very, very sensitive subject so you know content warning do you think that perhaps some folks might find the concept of that because i i the fact that i t- take blading at face value so mm. much it is, is now kind of doing this podcast it, it, it i feel strange for taking it at face value do you think that it might invoke feelings of like self-harm and things like that with some folks honestly i think that that is why i think i'm so uncomfortable with it is because yeah it does remind me of people self-harming and mm. it, it, i mean it is self-harm it is. yeah you know yeah. it's not like you've accidentally hurt yourself and oh well this has happened we'll just roll with it it's intentional harming of your body yeah and i know the the the, the reason behind it is totally different you know people self-harm for a multitude of reasons many of which is because they have an overwhelming feeling of emotions that they can't control and by self-harming it helps make them feel a, a feeling that isn't just unbearable agony mm. inside your brain and it's a way of like feeling numb to yeah. that which is obviously different from 
the self-harm of blading, which is, you know, for the sense of entertainment. Yeah. But there's something about it that makes me feel very, very icky. Mm. I mean, I, I don't think you're you're on your own about that. And I think, like, honestly, there's topics and wrestlers that we will cover in the future that I think will probably add to your uncomfortableness with blading. Mm. And I would say probably it's a good thing that it's a practice that's on the way out, mm. really. I think... In many ways, hard way seems to be safer in some respects. But I think blood and wrestling is is still a tricky topic, and I don't think anyone has really come to a. No one has really decided yet what's right because AEW, which is meant to be forward looking, is more than happy to provide plenty of blood. And but there... some people love that. But that that's it, you know. I realize I'm in the minority. Yeah, with it. absolutely. Uh, I I think, I think there is a place for blood and wrestling, but I mean. I was very much, I think I've said before, the ECW episodes, I was very much that fan when I was a kid growing up. I heard about ECW and I heard about the matches and the things that people like Terry Funk would do. And, you know, this was that match, the barbed wire match, I remember finally getting my hands on it when I was like 18 or 19. They released a Most Extreme Matches DVD compilation. I'm like, yes, this has got the barbed wire match with Terry Funk and Sabu. And I watched it and I was literally horrified because all I could sit there and think was, that barbed wire is right by his jugular vein. It's yeah. right by the carotid artery or whatever. It's, it's right on his fucking neck. Mm-hmm. And all and the match ends with them just literally going, oh, we can just turn <laughs> over here now. Yeah, Sabu's the world champion now. Cool. <laughs> These two men are just fused together for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it, I mean, it was not beautiful Katamari Joe. No. It was very disturbing, horrible, evil Katamari. <laughs> it was very fucking scary. Uh, I, and yeah, I, I think Terry Funk is a wrestler who many times I think the line is, is crossed a little bit. But I mean, him crossing that line, him giving so much, that's what got ECW off the ground. And without Terry Funk, there would have been no ECW. And we talked in that episode how important ECW was because Vince McMahon and the WWF took so much of that ideas and many of the stars and made the Attitude Era real out of it. And that's where wrestling kind of went was from there. But I feel in the ECW episode I didn't give the right amount of time and research to another company that was even more important because without this company ECW wouldn't have existed in its current guise. And that's FMW from Japan, which stands for Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling. Great name for a company. (laughs) Now, Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling was started by a guy named Onita, who was an up-and-comer. He was going to be like one of the big stars in New Japan. He got a knee injury, which meant that he wasn't able to wrestle that really hard style. So he thought, hmm, I've been to Memphis. I've met my friend Terry Funk a few times. I know they do these kind of wild brawls and death matches. What if we do a little bit of that over in Japan? But I think I can dial it up a little bit. And originally FMW was going to be like wrestlers versus martial artists. That was the gimmick. Oh, that's cool. Which is really cool. But then it became wrestlers versus deathmatch stipulations. And... Anita managed to fill stadiums with a new company. And, like, you know, this is when All Japan and New Japan, they had this whole market sewn up. It was turf war to the highest extent. And he managed to start this new company that was completely different. And you saw the match that we're about to, to review, a f- full of a stadium, you know, huge amounts of people. And the reason he was able to do it was that he was able to convince Terry Funk to come back to Japan and to wrestle a few matches for the first time for someone other than All Japan Wrestling. It was a huge deal. And the stuff that they did in FMW was so influential and so important. I think without Anita and without the types of matches that we're about to watch one of, wrestling would be very, very different. 
Everyone knows that Mick Foley is Cactus Jack and Terry Funk had death matches. We're not going to review one of those because those matches, I hate to say it, folks, are mostly garbage. They are. I'm. Uh, you know what? Find me in the mentions. It's, <laughs> it's lots of blood. It's lots of people hitting each other. And I, I had it down the list. We were going to do one just to watch it. And then someone put me onto this. They showed me this match which was from FMW, and they said, this is the greatest death match of all time, and it's possibly one of the greatest matches of all time. I'm not going to lie, not to spoil things, this is my new favourite match of all time. Yeah, I think I may join you in that. Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. What match is match number three then, Joe? So this is Terry Funk versus Atsushi Onita in A. (laughs) 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 Hello, hello. (laughs) In A, no rope. Exploding barbed wire time bomb deathmatch. Wow. And this is a FMW in nineteen ninety-three. Is that the new longest match title that we so. ever had? Yeah. Okay, I was very trepidatious putting this on because I know you can get squeamish about about certain violent things sometimes in wrestling. Yeah. But I also know that from our Jimmy Havoc episodes Some stuff is fine. Some stuff is fine. <laughs> and when it's coming from the viewpoint of let's use these violent rules and stipulations and props to tell a dramatic story as opposed to let's show how much we can hurt ourselves. Mm. When it's the former, not the latter, we can have a lot of fun. So, And oh, this on paper seems so much like it would be like... What's it called again? Name, give the match title again. A no rope, exploding, barbed wire... Time bomb deathmatch. Now, I was worried because earlier in the day I had showed Joan the no rope barbed wire match with Sabu going, oh man, how is this going to top there being no ropes and barbed wire? And I said at the time, I was like, it's a bit boring. It's mostly just them lying down on the ground. It's 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 a clever idea in theory. In, in practice, it doesn't really work very well. It says a lot about that match that the version that's on the network is the version that ECW showed to try and convince you not to watch a WCW pay-per-view. And they edited that down to a trim nine minutes. Like, it's so trimmed down. But it's really hard, I think, to have a good paced match when you've not got ropes to bounce off against. So much of wrestling mm. is designed to pick up speed or stop people from picking up speed yeah. by throwing them into the ropes, by throwing yourself into the ropes, by jumping off the ropes. So without that, how do you have a match? So this match is taking place in like, what, 1993. So yeah. this is, we got kind of older Terry here. Yeah. A great fucking look. He's in great shape. Onita is a fascinating individual who after founding FMW and having a a quite a successful career actually became a politician in Japan he became a congressman I believe for the Liberal Democrat Party Wow! one of the first things that he did when he became a politician was organize a fund to go and have some like humanitarian missions to Afghanistan that was being bombed heavily at the time so he went and he like put on wrestling shows in Afghanistan for the people who's you know, villages were being bombed and stuff, like putting together a ramshackle ring and a couple of guys going over. Like, you know, an interesting man, to say the least. Also, Terry Funk's, at one time, perennial lodger at the Double Cross Ranch. Because Anita had come down to Memphis and he had done some of the stuff around where Terry was in the 80s. And he stayed with Terry a lot. And Terry told all these stories about how Anita was just this, like, really kind, sweet and innocent type like not the type of guy you see in this match here like one time he was like Terry I want to go hunting like a real Texan he's like oh okay and he gave him a shotgun and said just go over there into the ranch and he looked out and he was just in the middle 
of the ranch just shooting a shotgun into the air at nothing. He's going, oh my god! And he came back. He's like, Terry, I did. I went hunting. Like, or he'd make Terry and his wife all this Japanese food. And, you know, they're kind of a they, they weren't into that cuisine, but they were like, oh, is it nice that he's taken up the whole kitchen and made all this food for us that we don't like? And you know, he was just kind of an odd couple. And the fact that they had this very real kinship and friendship is very important going into this match because these two men are in probably one of the scariest sets of stipulations I've ever seen in my life. When I heard this match type, I just thought it was a joke because it sounds like something very silly that you'd put as like a concept of a match to be like, just just get people in seats because it sounds ridiculous. You know, you know it's not going to live up to that. You know, what, no rope. Okay, no rope, fine exploding barbed wire yeah, we were you're like, not going to make barbed wire explode the capital place. letters and the commas were all over the place yeah. in this one time bomb yeah. death match okay I, I know what a death match is I know what a no rope barbed wire match so it's probably just going to be a no rope barbed wire match maybe with like an explosion at some point it's probably yeah. a bit shit it'll probably be one of those squib things that makes a lot of smoke and doesn't really do anything because we saw you know on the Mick Foley documentary a few times you know, they showed some footage from him in Japan and there was a lot of things like there'd be a board that would have like kind of C4 inverted commas mm. on and you do a backdrop and it would let off a big pang and be a lot of smoke didn't really seem like the most crazy thing it seemed kind no. of a bit hokey in some respects I see I assumed this was going to be very hokey I mean I think even this stipulation here that any other two wrestlers or not any other two wrestlers but a lot of wrestlers could go in and still make this stipulation seem hokey what is special about this is that you have two guys in this match even when they're walking out to the ring they have a look in their eyes that is if to say that I don't know why I'm doing this yeah. This is bad. It's a really bad idea. If I survive, great, but I don't know. Like there's a trepidation and a fear in both men's eyes. Which is really scary to see in Terry Funk's eyes of all people. And keep in mind we're watching a Japanese match with Japanese commentary. We've not got Michael Cole going and you gotta see the look in the eyes of Terry Funk there. He said earlier on WWE.com that he was scared about this match tonight. What do you think about that, King? You know, they're not telling us what to think. You can see all of this. Yeah. The referee is wearing a fucking bomb disposal suit. Is that what it was? It just looked like he was dressed as the Tin Man. <laughs> it's either a bomb disposal suit or it is the type of suit that they would have on a poster in a chemistry classroom showing a guy going to a lava-filled pit and right. it would say, not all chemists wear white coats. Right. So it's either for handling lava or surviving a bomb. Okay. Or both. So we're off to a good start then. I also like that the referee checked them for weapons at the start, just yeah. in case, like, you know, you don't want to bring anything dodgy no into this. No chairs in this exploding, no wires, <laughs> dub, wire, deathmatch, time bomb. Hey, get that chair out of the time bomb area. One, <laughs> two, three, come on. I read those instructions to what the match was, to, but I was like, oh, what does it mean that the, the, the lack of ropes these no ropes somehow explode that's not gonna happen is it how could that happen i figured maybe at some point someone would be thrown like out of the ring and they'd land on something that kind of goes now the theatricality when they're near this barbed wire they spend like five minutes just kind of inching grappling and stuff but like really slow grappling like they're trying to it's almost like an arm wrestling match yeah and the camera was really good at following them kind of closely i thought the camera work on this was was exceptionally good really good first of all terry gets thrown towards the ropes Mm. and he kind of stumbles backwards he's like leaning really back it looks like the momentum of his him being pushed towards the rope is just enough to make him fall Uh. and he manages to get back on his feet and his 
so tense. Like you see the the look in his eye. He looks so scared as he sees how close he is to those barbed wires and behind him. And the crowd him. are like, <laughs> which is again, it's really weird to see him look so scared to fall into some barbed wire because I saw him throw himself into barbed wire in that match with Sabu. Yeah, he's grand with barbed wire, so, surely. Well, he's just being silly. He's overreacting. But then Onita, as you say, gets thrown into the barbed wire. And the barbed wire explodes, folks. <laughs> and it doesn't, like, just go, pfft. It explodes. You see burn marks through his... His top is exploded partially away. And you see burn marks on his clothes and skin. Yeah, uh, I like the fact that both of the barbed wire, including matches that we've watched, included men having their outfits sexily revealed. <laughs> but unlike the bra and panties matches of old, it wasn't like they were bending over provocatively. In one case, a man's clothes were exploded off. And the other one was that a guy's legs got caught in barbed wire and shredded his trousers. Yep. <laughs> so, slightly less sexy, I guess. But uh, <laughs> So, yeah, Onisha is legitimately charged. And straight away... You can see in my notes here, this is pre-explosion. And then after explosion, my notes got a lot bigger. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> Another explosion then gets set off. And Onita's hair was literally smouldering. It's on fire. At this point. And he's covered in blood. They do a spot where Terry has his face oh, right near the barbed wire. It's horrible. The breathing is so loud. Yeah. And it looks like he's actually trying to get his... First, looks like he's trying to get his mouth, like he's trying to put his mouth over it, and then it's, no, it's the eyes. It's the eyes, and you just know, like, it's bad enough to see eyes near barbed wire. Like, in that match with Sabu, when you were scared about it being all wrapped around his neck and close to his jugular, mm. I was scared that it was going to go near his eye. <gasps> I'm so squeamish about eye things. And you know it's real barbed wire as well. You know it's real barbed wire, but also it's exploding real barbed wire. <laughs> An explosion in um, his eye. Terry, oh. Terry eats an explosion next. And after he explodes, he staggers around like he's just been fucking dropped out of an airplane or and something. And it looks like instinctually like he's going to fall against the ropes again. Because I guess you would if you were hurt in wrestling. You'd stumble around and probably lean against the ropes for support. And you can't do that in this because they'll just explode. And again, like one person kind of, you know, how many times I've seen in wrestling somebody like, whoa, oh, I almost went off the ramp there, yeah. you know. But this was proper. Like Terry looked like he was... If someone went up behind him and went, he yeah. would have actually fallen into those yeah. bombs. <laughs> those bombs. <laughs> those bombs. Then a timer starts with a very stressful alarm. It's, yeah, a five minute timer appears on screen and then this like horrible like alarm sound starts going off and you have no idea what's going to happen. But all of a sudden, Terry and Anita start beating the shit out of each other. They're like, really shit, fast. hurry up. Yeah, and people start leaving the arena. Now, it's an air raid siren. Yeah. You know, which even in early 90s Japan, you gotta think there's connotations there. Like, you don't use that air raid siren. Obviously, in England, it's got some meanings, but I think in Japan, it probably has culturally a lot more significance. Definitely. And I think that they treated the use of this and the fact that they were saying this whole ring was now going to explode. And I know that sounds like the silliest sentence in the world, but for this audience, 
they treated this with the respect and the drama that it needed. Like, it really added to the drama to be yeah. to see people scared getting up and leaving. That's it, I'm out of here. I don't <laughs> want to be here when the bomb goes yeah. off. Yeah, alright, okay, refunds are concessions, I guess. And still at this point, I thought, well, there's not going to be a bomb that's going to go off or anything. And even if it does, it's going to be some, again, it's going to be like this little lame puff of smoke and that's going to be it. Like, Onita does pin Terry. It's a big DDT. He manages to pin Terry. And Terry is just kind of all out of sorts now. He's, he tries to attack the referee. He attacks Onita. The bell is ringing and ringing now. The match is technically over. So you've got a ringing bell yeah. and an air raid siren. And this... And sorry, <sighs> I just got to mention, on top of each turnbuckle is a little uh, flashing light. Like yeah. on the top of a police car or an ambulance. So, one minute to go now, folks. This is terrifying. More the... people are leaving the arena at this point. The referee is out of there. Onita, he's out of there as well. He manages to get out. First of all, him and Terry just keep falling over. They're obviously like dead tired. They're covered in like explosion marks and blood and oh, it's just vile. And yeah, Onita, he manages to escape the ring. We've got maybe 20 so seconds left yeah. at this point. And at this point, I'm like, so that's it then. Terry Funk, like he explodes. That is the end of his career. <laughs> I forgot even at this point. Terry starts choking Onita with some rope. This is just, oh, yeah! just before the second timer starts going off. Fucking hell. So th this is like getting beyond stressful yeah. here right now. Then he starts beating up the referee. Oh, God. <laughs> and at this point, we've got one minute to go and an even scarier alarm starts going off. Anita leaves the ring, but Terry is lying in the middle of the ring unconscious. And you're oh like, God. what's going to happen? There's 10 seconds to go. Anita's like outside of the ring. He's looking at Terry like, like he doesn't know what to do. And he goes back into the ring and he starts just slapping the shit out of Terry's face. Like slapping him and slapping him and shaking him and trying to wake him up. I've got so many goosebumps right now. <laughs> Fucking hell. And you've got five seconds to go and Anita just starts to drag him. But Terry's much bigger than him. And, and he's completely dense, out cold as well. Totally out cold. Anita's trying like as hard as he can to drag him but he's nowhere near the edge of the ring. And you've got like two seconds to go and Anita makes the decision. He just, he covers Terry with his whole body. The ring explodes. Everything explodes. And all you can see for about 20 seconds is just whiteness and smoke. It was one of the most perfectly pitched dramatic moments I've ever seen in wrestling. Anita had tears in his eyes when the man he was fighting couldn't get safe and he thought he would try and sacrifice himself with a bomb going off to save Terry's life. And it's incredible oh like showmanship as well because you have this smoke and you have no idea, you know, are they dead? We, we both know that obviously, you know, Anita became a senator, Terry Funk's, you know, still, still wrestling uh, yeah. to this day. <laughs> so they obviously must be fine, but you just, you cannot see a thing. And then slowly out of the smoke emerges these two shadows and it's Terry and Anita and they're leaning on each other as they try and get out of the ring. And there's this incredible guitar solo. Yeah, they get rid of all the crowd noise. It's no pure silence. Noise. Yeah. So when they emerge from this smoke, it's not like the crowd going, yeah, it's just silence. Yeah. And then you get a big... And Terry's just like looks looks at Neil like you saved my life. Yeah. They're both bawling, crying, like tears streaming down their face, and like they're covered in this dust and so It literally looks like they've survived a bombing. Yeah, and the way they did the bomb, it's like they had 
four kind of sets of barrels that let off this big plume of fire essentially yeah. and they set off fireworks at all the corners of the ring as well so it, the ring got engulfed in smoke and flames and it actually was the damnedest looking thing because the guy seems to be okay other than the fact that the temperature had gotten so high they were looked like they were about to pass out from yeah. dehydration they were sweating so much as well mm-hmm. and it honestly it, i i had tears in my eyes yeah. i i did not go into the no rope exploding barbed wire time bomb death match <laughs> thinking i would end crying no and i'm happy to say that this wrestling match brought me to tears and afterwards, when Terry and them were there, the backstage and Terry... They leave, by the way, to Wild Thing. To Wild Thing, yeah. <laughs> arm in arm they leave. And then they go backstage and Anita wants to shake his hand. And Terry just goes, no, I cannot. For you to beat me, I cannot shake your hand. Next time we will fight with the teacher's rules. And he walks off and Anita just has tears because he's like, why won't my teacher, why won't my mentor, you know, shake my hand? What, and but like Terry's like you don't understand you know me losing to you I can't that I just can't have it and the way that he speaks is in a very succinct speech it's not like a normal Terry promo it's very much for the Japanese audience where they're not going to be like let me tell you something it's like here are the statements about how I feel and in three sentences he gets across this storyline that you know ends on this sad note but fucking hell it ended so dramatically you you have to see this match (laughs) you have to to see this match it's It's my new favorite match it's a total work of art it it had all the things that made me feel like a like i just watched a great movie yeah but it was professional wrestling it was real it was you know it's fighting when i told adam about it just by describing what happens in the end of the match he was like that sounds like the fucking finale for blackadder yeah and if you if you're someone who grew up watching that you know that's not said lightly that's fucking lump in the throat yeah goosebumps out the wazoo and it just shows why the use of these weapons and gimmicks it's not always blood and guts it's not always just schlocky let's get some blood and you know because like i think the you know the fact that the barbed wire explodes is very cool they did it really effectively the time bomb is awesome mm. but you could just have like two boring creator wrestlers have a match in this environment this 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 type of match and it would be a grand old time but the really cool thing about this isn't isn't all the explosions and the barbed wire and everything. It's the story they Mm. tell with all of those mechanics. And I think it's only as good as the people telling the story, but it's also only as good as the people who set up the props because there were other time bomb death matches. Like Terry had one with Cactus Jack in Japan as well. And when the time bomb went off, it literally was like three little shitty fireworks going. That's exactly what I thought would happen. And when it happened, the crowd just booed on on mass, and then Terry just went into the ring, dropped to his knees, and went, "Why?" <laughs> and in his book, he's like, "I just did that because I wanted the fans to know that I was also disappointed in the explosion." Like, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I I don't think it was an easy thing to pull off. I'll be honest, I don't know if I ever want to see another one of these. No, why? You don't need another one. That that is it's like why would you remake like the the best movie ever written? You don't need a remake. It's just not worth doing. Just yeah. watch the original, watch this match. I bet even the the most stalwart defenders of ECW will say it wasn't just blood and guts. It was using, you know, those ang- those gimmicks in that type of a style to get over wrestlers who wouldn't have gotten over otherwise or wouldn't get a chance otherwise. But again, like 
everything that you could point out in that argument, I will point to FMW. You know, FMW was so, so important. And I think it is worth bearing that in mind because there is a bit of a tendency to kind of make out that, you know, certain companies stole from other companies, but other companies like ECW wouldn't have stolen anything because they were so innovative. But I think it really is the case that if you draw a line back with so many innovations in wrestling, particularly modern wrestling since the late 90s onwards, and you think about like how strong style is a big thing now, we want it to be presented more like a serious sport in some respects, or even things like death matches and all that. You, you go back long enough, it's just Japan. If it was taken from another smaller company in, uh, you know, if it was taken from another company in America first, that company also took it from yeah. Japan. Uh, <laughs> I can think, like, honestly, that case from the Ray Mysterio episode where I talked about Cyclone Monroe coming down with a mask for the first time to, to Mexico, that seems to be, like, the only time that American wrestling brought something instead of taking something <laughs> away from indigenous wrestling. I have to know your star rating for this one. Five stars. It's a perfect match. It's honestly fantastic. Isn't it great? It's so great. It's so, so good. And I think this would work for new fans. It would work for the most experienced, jaded old fans. Yeah. You know, people who gave up watching wrestling 10, 15 years ago because, you know, wrestling's shit these days, if so so you say. They would love that. I yeah. think guys who like the current stuff would love it. It's it's just got something for everyone. It's such a great, great match. It's it's a match that if it was shown today, I would still say it seems ahead of its time because mm. it has used things there that I am always wanting in my wrestling. Has no one used music at the end of a big match I before? Know, it's so good. Are you it's like, so the the use of silence. Yeah. So effective. It's, he's treated it like it is not just a wrestling match. He's treated it like it is a piece of film or something yeah. like that. I think this is a, a wrestling match you'd want to show to your, your friend who's really into like movies and yeah, stuff like that. Definitely. You know, This is directed so well. Oh my God, I fucking adored it so much. So good. So Terry didn't stop his career in ECW. He didn't stop it. Even afterwards, even though he had another retirement match in 1997, which lasted a grand total of a few weeks, maybe a few months. I did want to touch on briefly before we wrap up. Obviously, Terry went on and continued to wrestle on and off for various organizations but usually he focused more on doing independent stuff because he liked to try and give back to smaller promotions whenever he could but i did show joe the very auspicious and incredibly strange debut or re-debut of terry funk in the world wrestling federation in late 1997 when he returned not as terry funk what was his nom de plume oh it was Chainsaw Charlie? Yeah! Which I've got to say, ever since we mentioned that bit about how when he was a heel, he would get into like into character too much and that he'd spend most of his time in character, like even around his family. Like, did he do that when he was Chainsaw Charlie as well? Jesus Christ, I hope not. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's so scary. Chainsaw Charlie, which, if you believe Terry Funk's book, the character came to be in this way. Hey, Terry, you're going to be debuting tonight. You're going to be Cactus Jack's tag team partner. You're going to be coming out of a box. Okay, how am I going to come out of a box? Oh, we got the special chainsaw for you to rip your way out of. Oh, okay. Um, I guess I'm going to have to be like Chainsaw Terry or Chainsaw Charlie then, I guess. Like, yeah, okay. Well, if I'm going to be a new character, I'm going to have to get a new outfit. So you better get me some Wrangler jeans and some pantyhose and some talcum powder so I can put them on my head. Okay. What's the talcum powder for? I don't fucking know. 
I, I don't know. I, he's meant to look like kind of like a crazy wild man, like swinging a chainsaw. Is it, it on his head then? Yeah, he's got the pantyhose That's over his really head. really dangerous. He you know throws... you're not supposed to breathe in talcum powder. Oh, really? It's incredibly bad for you. Really? Yeah, super, super bad for you. Wow, God, Terry, you got to watch that. Yeah. Don't, don't be doing the chainsaw Charlie at the reunions. Like, it's <laughs> dangerous. I mean... Jim Cornette has the adage that anything that comes out of a box is over. Yeah. You witnessed Terry Funk chainsawing his way out of a box. Did it get over with you? Yeah, for sure. It's really scary, though. I get very uncomfortable watching people use chainsaws, especially when those people are staggering around, oh, God. limping, and using the chainsaw with one hand while waving it around near children chainsaw in an enclosed space as well where you can't see a damn yeah. thing he was like I just and have to guess and he's wearing a mask yeah fucking hell so the actual chainsaw that he would have when he went around with it was a fake chainsaw okay so it was a fake chainsaw in that the chain had been disconnected from the motor so the motor would still go mm. and make that noise but the chain wasn't moving but the chain wouldn't be moving but they had also rigged up a little thing to it where the chain would rub against a little piece of metal so it would make those sparks so that's ah. when you see him come out it would make the noise you'd see the sparks so you'd see the sparks and hear the noise your mind basically fills in the blanks and tells you you're seeing a moving chainsaw mm. even though if you look closely it's completely static but the one he was using here was definitely not fake the one to come out of the box yeah. was real yeah it definitely was but one time and this is really fucking scary Terry had a little bit of a conspiracy theory about what was happening in the WWF at the time. But one time he was coming out, like, 1998 with the chainsaw. And he went down, he's like, right, going to press the button, make it go, and make the sparks fly. And he's pressing the button, he's like, oh, this is weird. It's not making the noise properly, and the sparks aren't coming out properly. And he's halfway to the ring, pressing the button over and over again, thinking something's wrong. And all of a sudden, he realizes his arm and half his shoulder is completely soaking wet. And then he smells gasoline. <gasps> Oh, no. And the prop guy who was in charge of the chainsaw had given it to him and had filled it up with gas but forgot to screw the cap on all the way. So Terry was out there revving up a chainsaw and generating sparks and he was covered in gasoline. That's so scary. Keep in mind that Terry Funk we mentioned in our Mick Foley episode had already been set on fire by the fire chair by Mick Foley. Terry does not need to be set on fire anymore. We just talked about him being in a bum. All right. <laughs> no more fire for Terry. Okay. That's. But he mentioned as well. as like, hey, you know, that happened to me within the same year. Mick Foley and Hell in the Cell. He wasn't meant to go through it. The prop guy said that the cell would hold his weight. It didn't. And what happened with Owen Hart happened as well. Oh, my God. And he's basically saying whoever was in charge of the props in 1998, 1999 WWF, like, did wrong by so many people. Because those were... Two near misses and one, you know, you know, own heart, he died. So yeah. that, I think, mean, I just think it's, it's worth bearing in mind because we talked about obviously all the great use of deathmatch wrestling and all this cool acceleration of the sport of wrestling that they did. But I think it's also important to bear in mind with that came a seemingly a necessity for the big companies to do lots of big stunts and big spots, which I don't think the wrestlers were comfortable doing. You know, Brett driving around in a you know a race car and WCW like we we're talking about. They're not they're not stuntmen. They're no. wrestlers at the end of the day. Makes me really thankful for uh, quote unquote health and safety gone mad. Yeah, right. Maybe you could go mad in wrestling a little bit and get some people some fucking healthcare insurance. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, a union and stuff like that. I wish it would go mad that way. Yeah. I don't know. It just very telling that Terry Funk in an interview a couple of years ago said that hardcore wrestling was a necessary evil. 
in that it was necessary to change the style of wrestling and to move things on. But he also did refer to it as being evil in that I think a lot of people got hurt and a lot of people who weren't fully trained got involved in doing things they had no right doing. Yeah. So, yeah. I wanted to show Joe just a little bit of old Terry to round us off. And I did show Joe Terry Funk Wrestling at ECW's One Night Stand in 2006. Now, he was 63 or 64 in that one. Did it make you uncomfortable watching him wrestle at that age? No, he looks the same. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? He does, and he looks the same now as well. He yeah. just looks the same. I think he he got an old man's face very young. Mm. And I think because he's got a young man's body, you know, he's obviously kept in great shape and everything. Because of that, he's managed to last a long time. Like, he looks old, but doesn't act old yeah it's, it's kind of it's still terry funk isn't it yeah like i think that sometimes when you see certain wrestlers you kind of go damn they're old like yeah. they, they they look different to my memory of them there's guys 30 years younger than terry funk who when they wrestle i'm like yeah god he's too old to be wrestling now that's that's not good don't don't wrestle anymore and yeah terry funk seems to be absolutely fine and he's in his 70s be interesting when we do our flair episode how you kind of like just the idea of seeing like someone who is elderly wrestling mm. you know if that's kind of yeah a bit because that's so weird like terry funk is old but i don't know if i'd call him elderly yeah, I mean... Because elderly implies a sense of vulnerability and almost weakness. I did like in that match, though, that the big spot at the end where Mick Foley dove off the apron and landed onto barbed wire and then Terry Funk dove off the apron and landed onto his much more comfortable friend, Mick Foley. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I just... I like showing you that match because that was the match that truly hooked me as a Terry Funk fan. Mm. And just him with the eye... And I loved having been on this journey with you. And if Terry does come out and, you know, wrestle again, so be it. I don't think he will ever truly be retired. I mean, the sad thing is, though, like, one thing has changed, actually, that might mean he doesn't wrestle anymore. And that's that his wife died. That's true. It was only March last year, I think. Vicky passed away. And, you know, we mentioned that they had split up for a year, obviously. But he relied on her so much and it breaks my heart to you know i've listened to a lot of interviews and stuff with terry for this and the ones from the last year he's basically like yeah if it sounds like i'm heartbroken it's because i'm heartbroken yeah and it's because she was so much more than his wife she was his manager she was his confidant in wrestling like he said every match he had he went to her afterwards and said what did you think was good and what did you think was bad? And he never rewatched his matches. She would watch his matches though and she would feed back to him. And I think that's really interesting, like that, you know, that role for like a wrestler's wife from back in the day. I don't think you see that really in, you know, a wrestler's partner who's mm-hmm. kind of like, tell me about your matches and stuff. I think mean, we see it, you know, with Sasha Banks and her husband a bit we saw yeah, on the, uh, that's true. On, on her Chronicle. But I think when you have someone like that who's not just your best friend, but someone who you rely on in your professional life. Mm. It'd be like if I lost you and I couldn't even begin to imagine to think how heartbreaking and yeah. upsetting that would be. You know, I, I don't I don't suppose to imagine what it's like for Terry right now. And like when you've been with that person, like as you say, they got together in what, seventh grade? Eighth sorry, fifth grade. Fifth grade. Like that's your whole life with someone. Mm. Your whole life. Best friend. Yeah. It is very, very, like, you know, the, the Double Cross Ranch is sold now. He lives elsewhere because, you know, he couldn't, you know, look after the ranch anymore. But, you know, his daughters have all got grandkids. He's very, very happily, you know, 
the the patriarch of the funk family i don't think he necessarily wants anyone from the funk family to get back into to wrestling it's been a weird career for terry funk but my god what an interesting man i really enjoy going through this stuff with you i hope you've had your eyes opened a little bit from even just a little bit of his career that we've managed to look at here today. Yeah, no, it's been incredible. I've had such a fun time learning about this mad old man. <laughs> yeah, turns out Uncle Terry had a lot more going for him than we thought. Let's check out your tweets and your Facebook posts. So first up over on Twitter, at HowToWrestling, one from Frankie Mon. Terry Funk's toughness is a thing of legend. Legends like the time he wrestled Wahoo McDaniel with a knife hanging out of his neck after being stabbed by a fan. Ah, good God in heaven, I actually have a little know about that. Yeah, in his office in, in the Double Cross Ranch, he, is, he used to have two pocket knives up on the wall, and one of them is that pocket knife from the fan stabbing <laughs> him in the neck. And he said, those people were really giving me an award, even though they didn't realise it. They were telling me I had done my job as a heel, and I had done it really well. <laughs> like, there was one night where he cut a promo, and he was told afterwards, we had to confiscate 17 guns. Uh. And he was like, fucking hell, amazing. <laughs> Did you hear? 17 guns. Yeah, I know, that's a record. Like, uh, <laughs> You feel like you should ring a bell every time they confiscate yeah. like a, a knife or a weapon. Like, God, wrestling was fucking weird back in those days. Seriously. This first comment from Facebook.com slash HowToWrestling, I mean, it's the first of many uh, along this line. I just thought I wanted to mention it. Artwork for this episode from Dan Swanton, Dirt Furts on Twitter and Instagram. And many people are saying it's their absolute favourite of all time. Yeah, it's so good. Oh man, it gets Terry across. I mean, that I look at that now, that just reminds me of that barbed wire death match. <laughs> um, just had an explosion in the background. I just put a timer in the top left corner <laughs> of it there, yeah. So lots of people saying that the artwork was a particular uh, a particular favourite for them. And hey folks, keep your eyes on HowToWrestling.com because in the not-too-distant future, we are going to be actually selling some art prints from some of Dan's work here. So keep your eyes on HowToWrestling.com for any and all updates. Next up from Brian Bradshaw, where most wrestlers in their 40s begin winding down their careers, Terry Funk opted for a second wind in his by becoming a deathmatch specialist, furthering his career by another three decades. Such is the insanity of the man, he simply refuses to retire or die. I just like think when we're talking about people refusing to retire, and you think so many times it's like, he's like, I want to retire, but I want FMW to be successful. I want to retire, but I want ECW to be successful. And like he said he came back to Vince in 1997 because he was like, I know that they were getting a whole new crop of guys. And I wanted to make sure that the, the underneath guys were ready. And I think no one in wrestling who's a you know veteran is like, you know what, I'm going to extend my career and maybe take a position lower down the card in certain companies to help get the next generation yeah. ready. That's... Quite a selfless act in many respects. Yeah, definitely. He could have just retired and lived off that ranch well in, into the 80s, probably, if he wanted to. And he would have had plenty of money, I'm sure. Mm. But yeah, he went to do other things. This one comes from Adam Scully. I always forget if we type our feelings here or not, but you do. Terry Funk is wrestling's crazy grandpa, who is really sweet, but then tells you a story that scares you to your very core. He also might be immortal. I don't know. <laughs> Bless. Now from Handsprings 777 I have a step-grandfather that reminds me of Terry Funk, i.e. very kind, soft-spoken, and I'm fairly certain has killed someone in a bar fight. 
Wrestling's beloved crazy uncle that can't be killed by conventional methods. Yeah, and if you try to, he'll bite your ass off. <laughs> this is from Joey Robertson. Terry Funk is the only wrestler I can think of who inspired nearly every type of fan from every generation since seemingly the very start of wrestling's mainstream popularity. Somehow he is celebrated amongst both traditionalists and innovators, a feat very, very few can say. He's meaner than a rattlesnake and tougher than an old boot. It'll be a very dark day in wrestling when old Terry finally goes. But if in any other time he's retired is an indication, I'd be surprised if that day actually ever came. I think Terry will wrestle at least once more before the end. Uh, I will be very surprised if he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's Terry Funk-like, yeah. you know. No one's going to tell him no. <laughs> this one from Feet Yankee. More than his wrestling, Funk's selling is god-tier. Hearing him moan and beg for a wire cutter to release himself from a barbed wire board or panic because he thinks he's been blinded is haunting. Also, I think I'm the only person who liked Chainsaw Charlie. You're not. I like Chainsaw Charlie. Oh, uh, yeah. Great. I, I feel maybe we're quite brief in our discussion of Chainsaw, but like, I like that, and I bought that it was Chainsaw Charlie because it was like, well, Mick Foley's Cactus Jack, so he needed a persona yeah. so it was you know it's Mick Foley and Terry Funk obviously but it's Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie I thought an alliteration it's like a special Halloween version of their personas <laughs> spooky <laughs> but no more chainsaws in wrestling right just make them safe make them really really safe yeah okay from Michael Francis Terry Funk is the dictionary definition of a selfless veteran who literally gave blood, sweat, and tears back to an industry infamous for egomaniacal older wrestlers who want to stay in the spotlight well beyond their moment in the sun. I think comparing and contrasting Terry with the other older wrestlers who we have, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, compare and contrast him to Hulk Hogan, for instance. <laughs> you know? Oh, man. I, I just I think it's it just speaks to very different outlooks on yep. life. You couldn't get more dissimilar than those two. And I think as well Terry Funk is a case for what little traditional values are kind of left in wrestling from those old days. Because obviously it's never going to go back to kayfabe. It's never going to go back to the days where where Terry Funk literally wouldn't break Dusty Rhodes into the wrestling business because he didn't think that he was going to take it seriously. Like It's never going to go back to that. But... The idea of like making sure the next generation is ready, making sure your kind of house is in order, making sure that, you know, you are kind of protecting, at least in some sense, the integrity of your shows. These are all things that Terry was brought with them from those days of the 50s and 60s. And I think there are positive things. Anytime people bring up kind of traditional old-timey wrestling, it's oftentimes a negative thing. And that's I'm speaking about myself there primarily. It's worth bearing in mind that there is some good from that generation. And I think Terry Funk exemplifies that good. For sure. Now up from Stephen Muses. For all his reputation as a hardcore and deathmatch wrestler in his later career, you cannot overestimate how popular he was as a pure babyface in the 70s and 80s. He was NWA champion when that still meant something. Yeah, and you know, Terry, even though his dad was involved in deathmatches and stuff like that, and some of the territories where... Terry would have worked like Memphis and Florida was known for some crazy wild brawls. You know, he, he wrestles the likes of Jerry and Jack Briscoe and Harley Race. This isn't, you know, the types of people who'd be setting you on fire. This was very much, you know, locked up, grappling, old-timey wrestling that had a lot more parallels probably with amateur wrestling than a lot of the wrestling you might see today. So 
that happens oftentimes with with big hardcore wrestlers though where they've actually got this like real solid set of fundamentals that you never hear about because mm. well i didn't make money doing that so this is what you know me for instead yeah. but that is a big part of terry's career it's a shame that so much of it is lost to, to time yeah that's such a shame mm. dylan justice just bringing up a point here a match which funk was involved in terry funk versus sabu versus shane douglas that was the first triple threat match called a three-way dance then in ECW. That was the first triple threat match in American wrestling history. Wow. So that's, a, that's an, again, another innovation not necessary to do with setting people on fire or being blown yeah. up. Without triple threats and multi-people matches, wrestling booking would be very fucking difficult. So different. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe, we've reached the end of our long and dusty trail. We're outside the Double Cross Ranch and Terry Funk has a message for the women, thank you very much for listening to this episode of How To Wrestling. And all of you who downloaded the episodes on the podcast feed, we really appreciate it. Joe, what are your final thoughts on, on Terry Funk? I love him. He's kind of exactly what I thought he would be. Really? Yeah, he's this eccentric old man who won't stop wrestling, even though maybe everyone else says he should. <laughs> I don't know how he does it. I don't know how his body lets him continue to wrestle he has probably lived more years of his life in pain than you've been alive yeah definitely no definitely he has you know and that's that's just like you know there's certain people in wrestling who are kind of larger than life for various reasons i think terry is definitely larger than life because of his charisma because of his unique character and all that but like he's larger than life in the sense that I I can't fathom what it's like to be him or mm-hmm. at all or to make the decisions he's made or to put up with what he's put up with or to experience the things he's experienced in his life. You know, he can't even. You know, in his book, he's like, I don't know why I do this. I just, I love to perform. That's kind of it, really, at the end of the day. A quintessential performer is Terry Funk, I think. Are you excited for our next episode, Joe? I sure am. There's actually kind of a link here in many respects because we're going from (laughs) one guy who's a self-made man in wrestling who definitely forged his own path. And he did it certainly without the help of a lot of big companies or certainly not staying along there for, for very, very long. Also a fan of ICP. Also a fan of ICP. Terry Funk's favourite band is the Insane Clown Posse. Love it. I just figured that Joe Joe's working on a project right now where she knows a lot more about the Insane Clown Posse than I do. <laughs> but there is a link there with Terry Funk and the Insane Clown there Posse. There definitely is, yeah. Fun Terry Funk Insane Clown Posse story. They used to release videos where they would look at all like old death matches from Japan and then they would do like silly commentary over it and talk about it. You know, they'd make fun of it and they'd call like McFoley Cactus Sack and stuff like that. <laughs> and their best selling one involved Terry Funk. And Terry had always just like jokingly said to anyone like, hey, you ever heard of Insane Clown Posse? And he would always say the same thing, which is, yeah, when I see those two clowns, I'm going to kill them. They owe me money. Like, <laughs> just joking with them. And they came to his ranch one day. They were, you know, a promoter had invited them around. And they're like, Terry, they really want to speak with you. And they're like, Mr. Funk, we really want to apologize, you know, for not giving you money uh, for the, for the, <laughs> not giving you money for the video that we made all those years ago. We want to leave you a little bit of something, a little bit of cash just for your troubles. He's like, ah, don't, no, don't, don't worry about it. it don't, it's fine. And they're like, look, come on, at least, at least let us pay you for the, the nice dinner that you've made for us here. And he's like, right, fine. They had chili or whatever you know, leave a bit of money in the coffee can on the way out. And when they'd gone, he's like, I'll check. They probably left me 20 or $30. And they left him four grand. Whoa. And then Terry Funk is like, and let me tell you people something right now. 
I love the Insane Clown Posse. The next retirement match I have, they're going to be in the semi-final. They're the greatest band in the world, and I have all their records. I haven't got around to listening to them yet, but I'm sure I have them in here somewhere. And then Terry goes on to explain why he likes going to the Gathering of the Juggalos, because everyone is so high, it's very easy to sell a t-shirt. Everyone is very nice at the Gathering of the Juggalos. It's one of their core principles as a juggalo is you welcome newcomers to the group, you give them food, and you help make sure they have a good time. Well, those people were so goddamn smoked up on the marijuana, they didn't need (laughs) much convincing to buy a Funk You (laughs) t-shirt. So, yeah, uh, also a fan of the Insane Cloud Bossy. Also a self-made world traveller, certainly pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. And a personal hero of mine, next episode is going to be about Boom Boom Colt Cabana. I cannot wait to talk to you about this man who's not only been incredibly influential and important in the world of wrestling, but more importantly for you and me, I could probably say if Colt Cabana wasn't here, you and I wouldn't be doing this and half the wrestling podcasting world as exists would not exist anyone who enjoys and listens to wrestling podcasts and enjoys independent wrestling and enjoys social media being used positively in professional wrestling all of these things we owe a debt of gratitude to Cabana. i feel strongly at the moment without getting too much into it that Cabana is in need of fans maybe knowing how important he was the, the reason he's been in the news recently hasn't been for the stuff that I think that fans want to be reading about. There's been a lot of drama, there's been a lot of crap with, with CM Punk and stuff like that. And I want to spend this episode as like a tribute to him and as a way of me and you all saying thank you to him for inspiring so many wrestling podcasts and the work that he has done. So we are after matches, thoughts and feelings about Cole Cabana. We're after favorite moments from the now finished Art of Wrestling podcast. I want to show Joe a few classic episodes, mainly some of the Nigeria trips and all that. And if Colt, like he has with me, if he has affected you in your lives in any way, shape, or form, make sure you use the hashtag HowToColtCabana to let us know your thoughts about Colt Cabana and his role in the world of professional wrestling as it stands today. Do you know much about Colt yet? I mean, bits. bits. I obviously read the article that you wrote for our wonderful website about Colt Cabana. Oh, yes. His influence on you as a podcaster. I follow him on Twitter. So I, you know. So I'm on the Orange. Cassidy episode. I saw the Orange Cassidy episode, yeah. So I mean, I've, I've seen Wrestling Road Diaries as well. Ah. So, you know, I've, I know a bit about you him. You know a bit about Coach. He seems like a really fun, nice, wholesome guy. Well, we are very excited and intrigued to find as much comedy and funny stuff that you know that Cole has done both in and out of the ring because we're big fans of comedy and wrestling here and Cole Cabana is truly a master of it. Get all your tweets, match recommendations, thoughts and otherwise either to facebook.com slash wrestling or use the hashtag on Twitter HowToColeCabana and don't forget for any and all information about upcoming episodes, past episodes, bonus viewing, articles and otherwise HowToWrestling.com you can find information there as well about our Patreon requesting an episode and if you're interested in advertising on HowToWrestling send us an old email to HowToWrestling at gmail.com or head over to Patreon.com forward slash HowToWrestling for all the information there. Well, it's been a wild time. I'm covered in goosebumps and I have tears in my eyes 
we must have been talking about Terry Funk. <laughs> I think I need a lie down after this yeah. one. Until next time, and thank you everyone for all your help with How to Terry Funk. It's a goodbye from me, Kevin. And a goodbye from me, Joe. And we'll see you next time on How to Wrestling. See ya!